0: one semester of law school, one semester of criminal justice, two experts. I'm Kristen Caruso, I'm Brandy Egan. Let's, Let's go to court. court.
1: On this episode, I'll talk about a terrible pharmacist and I'll be
0: talking about the Tate, Bianca murders. Hmm, who did that? Hmm. Okay. Okay.
1: What so the hell are we say. doing? Yeah. Oh, episode 100. Woo-hoo! Woo-hoo! So we are, in light of our one hundredth episode, yeah. we are redoing our first episode. Yes.
0: Because oh my gosh. Both of us hear that episode now and we're like, oh, the things we would do differently. Have you listened to it lately? No. I listened to it this week. You did?
1: Yeah, in preparation for this. Oh. I gotta sit. I used sit.
0: preparation H instead.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> See, this is terrible. Have we really improved? That's no, the question to ask. Not. Um no, I listened to it. I mean, it's a little cringe. Yeah, it's not bad. It's
0: not terrible, but I I would have covered my case very differently, and I did. I'm doing it totally differently today.
1: Mine's pretty much the same old today. Well, good. Yeah, am glad. Because I did a great job. You did Damn so it. well. Oh, my gosh. It was amazing. <laughs> Do you remember that award we won for our first yes, episode?
0: Yes. <laughs> I have to talk about something before we get into episode 100. Okay. I have not been able to stop thinking about your case that you did last week, and I went down a rabbit hole this week you're kidding me no okay so you did jesse costello yes and she had the affair with ed mcmahon yeah and so i started looking up ed mcmahon because i was like i wonder if he's a relation to the ed mcmahon yeah so i tried to make him related so hard. <laughs> he's not unfortunately but when i looked up ed mcmahon ed mcmahon is actually ed mcmahon jr Oh my like God, the so, Ed McMahon. So for a second there, you were like, yeah. And he God. was born in 1923, which would be like, it would add up the perfect timing. And he grew up in Massachusetts.
1: You, I cannot imagine how <laughs> thrilled you must have been for that brief
0: period where you're I like, right I saying, got it. But no, it's not him. So I'm sorry, Brandy. I was so disappointed. I'm sorry for your loss. Out. And I know so much about Ed McMahon now. <laughs>
1: um should we talk about how amazing it is to be doing our 100th episode
0: yes tell the people kristen i don't even know it's just this has been so fun oh so fun we legitimately have the best time doing this and
1: it's funny because like i've had people say stuff like well you know it sounds like you guys put in a lot of work and it is a lot of work but it has always been such a blast yeah Including researching the cases, because we're both total weirdos exactly. and we're into that stuff. Exactly. I went and researched Ed McMahon after last week's <laughs> episode because I
0: needed to know more.
1: <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm so glad we started, I'm and I'm so glad we kept
0: with it. And, and that we're quitting here at episode 100. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, world. <laughs> you know, no, it's been amazing, and... I'm the fact that, like, from where we started at episode one to where we are now with the Patreon and all yeah. of our supporters, it's just amazing. Yeah, it really is. We just, I I know that I say it every week and Kristen makes fun of me, but I cannot tell you enough how much we appreciate your support. Yeah. It just means the world to us.
1: I remember when we first started out. <laughs> <laughs> And do you remember, like, we somehow figured out, I think it was through a bit.ly link that, like, someone in France had, like, clicked on our first episode and was like, oh, my God, France, that's so exciting. Yeah. And then I was like oh my gosh, I wonder if we can figure out, like, how many people are listening. And so I started to kind of try to figure it out. And then it turns out that, like, there was so little data because <laughs> there were so few people listening yes. that iTunes was like, we can't give you any information because that would be being like, well, Steve in yeah, Pensacola exactly. is, you know, it would be like violating privacy. And that was a very yes, humbling moment. It was. And here we are today. And it's, it's really exciting. It's so exciting. We know we're not huge, but... Uh,
0: You make us feel huge.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, I spat everywhere. (laughs) Thanks for making us feel Feel huge. (laughs) Brandy? Yeah. Tell
0: me about
1: Charles Manson. I'm not
0: going to because it's episode 100, you asshole. What? It's an even numbered episode.
1: What? No, I thought we were redoing our first one. Well, it's fine. I can go first well, if you no, want no, me to. By, no, no, by, no, no, no. by our no, no. typical standard, you would go first. Oh, is it typical that we redo an episode? <laughs> God damn it. We are quitting. <laughs> fine. Fine. I'm totally not mentally prepared for this at all. But here I'll I go. I'll go first if you no, want me to. No. No. <laughs> okay. Well, I get Hmm. <laughs>
0: Robert Courtney. (laughs) Folks, I am getting over my cold. I am doing much better.
1: And I am getting over getting my wisdom teeth pulled out of my head.
0: (laughs) It kind of sucks.
1: Yeah, I had mine done like, you know. Like a normal person when you were a teenager? Yeah, when I was
0: 15 or 16. Were you that young? Yeah. Oh, my God. I was 16 because I worked at Walgreens, so I would have been 16. Yeah. Well, good for you. Thank you. I
1: got it done at the tender age of 34 (laughs) (laughs) all right you ready to hear about a terrible man i am a terrible local man yes Mm. no okay here we go here we go (laughs) part of the charm Robert Courtney was born in 1952 in Hayes, Kansas. Who heard of it. This is the part where I really dropped the ball. He was born to a woman. Great. I'm sure she had a name. And a man. <laughs> and a man whose name was Robert Lee Courtney. Oh. Yeah. One of those. Robert Lee was a preacher and he says that Robert was an ideal son. What the fuck does that mean? Well, I very generous use of the word ideal when the shit hit the fan. And I, I, poor Robert Lee. I think when the shit hit the fan, much later, he was really shocked as a lot of people were, and one of the things he said to a reporter was like he was an ideal son.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah like we never would have seen this coming. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I got you. No, not like knowing what I know now. I still think he no, was a great I didn't guy. That. <laughs> Robert played the trombone in high school. And as far as personalities go, this dude was... A lot of articles describe him as kind of vanilla, but they also kind of mention that he struck people as a little odd. And I've got to say, one of the benefits to coming back and redoing an old episode that took place in Kansas City is, like, people have said stuff. We have a friend, a uh-huh. mutual friend. It's... Uh-huh. And went to pharmacy school with Robert Courtney and was like, yeah, everyone thought he was a total weirdo. He was very odd. So he's like this super stern, very serious, straight-laced guy. Okay, tons of fun eventually he went to the university of missouri kansas city for pharmacy
0: school excellent what could go wrong i think for a moment we should acknowledge that we're sitting in a brand new setup for our this feels so so weird weird.
1: we're we're really far away from each other (sighs) the intimacy is gone is gone no i mean like we've lost that love (laughs) and (laughs) feeling whoa that love and feeling for our first episode We were, like, on On top top of each each other. other, Yeah, and we had one microphone (laughs) on a TV tray. And we didn't even have laptops. We just had had pieces of paper. Yes, our our
0: cases were printed
1: out on pieces of paper. And here's the thing. When I listened back to that episode... You could hear the paper. You could hear the paper. And also, I did this weird thing where I would clap when I talked. Like, for (laughs) emphasis, I'd be like, and then, blah, 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 (laughs) and then. I remember, like, it's funny the things you forget. I remember
0: trying to edit that episode and be yeah. like
1: why the hell did i clap so much i clapped a ton <laughs> anyway the thing
0: anyway is so are. norm put us in a new setup today mm-hmm. for better audio quality and i hate it i hope you guys appreciate
1: it because we hate it that's right it's like we're in separate play plans now Play, plans? <laughs> play plans? <laughs> i'm sorry i think the wisdom teeth thing uh, like yeah. my mouth's a little funky yeah i can smell it from here <laughs> no, i'm sorry <laughs> i'm just kidding You guys, I confess to Brandy that I feel like I can't brush my teeth as well. And now she's taking advantage of my insecurities. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, back to Robert Courtney. I just clapped. Why are you clapping? I don't know. (laughs) He graduated from pharmacy school in 1975 and began working. And Robert kind of kicked ass as a pharmacist. He began working in Research Medical Tower Pharmacy in Kansas City. And eventually in 1986, he had the opportunity to buy that pharmacy. And he did. He was the owner of the pharmacy, and boy, oh boy, was it awesome. Way before anyone else was doing it, Robert specialized in mixing intravenous drugs. Did I say that right? I think he had an extra syllable, but... No, you guys get it. <laughs> so he was one of the first pharmacists in Kansas City to give cancer meds in these, like, pre-mixed bags. Doctor's loved him for it yeah it made their lives and their staff's lives so much easier was it (laughs) was it great for everyone we'll see robert had a nice middle-class existence he owned his pharmacy he was a bit of an innovator in the field he had a wife and two daughters he was very involved in his church northland cathedral in 1990 he made forty eight thousand dollars okay adjusted for inflation About $95,000. Yeah. Pretty good. Not bad. God, I really can't talk today. Did you hear hear that pretty good? It was (laughs) pretty good. Robert was like a cardboard cutout of a suburban dad. The dude was polite, a little on the serious side, but, you know, people liked him. He treated all of his customers with a great deal of respect. A lot of them described him as very gentlemanly. Mm -hmm. He always had his hair neatly trimmed he was one of those Mm. and what i like neatly trimmed hair i know you do you're not gonna like this guy no i (laughs) already know i'm not gonna like this guy and he always dressed very professionally too Uh but in the early 90s things started to fall apart robert got divorced but retained custody of his girls and um, he started talking to this retired pharmaceutical sales rep. The rep told him, hey, you can buy these drugs from me for cash. What you do with them is up to you. Mm, shady. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't sound great, does no, it? Doesn't it sound good at all. super illegal, right? Yep. So, of course, uh, Robert was like, yeah, sure. Robert paid the rep cash for drugs and then sold them at his pharmacy at a higher price. It was just a nice little side hustle, Brandy. mm mm-hmm. It was also completely illegal Yeah. in the meantime. You know, Robert had just divorced his wife. He started to lose some weight. Ooh. He was feeling, he was feeling real... Was he going to the gym? I don't know how he did it exactly, but just know that he was very proud of how he was looking at this point. Oh, good. Dropped the LBs. He was as felt as he could be. <laughs> so he was like, I know what I want now a hot young wife darn right <laughs> a pyt, so, a <laughs> young thing <laughs> so he reached out to this woman whom he'd known since childhood we're gonna call her betty she spoke to the new york times magazine on the condition of anonymity so we'll just go with that mm-hmm. betty and robert had known each other for forever but now she was living in detroit she was a single mom but she would come to Kansas City to visit Robert and he would pull out all the stops. He was like, "Hey, do you want to drive my ex-wife's Jaguar? Go ahead, he'd hand her the keys. And um, let's go on a date in a horse-drawn carriage." Which I know how that sounds, but on the plaza yeah, yeah, at Christmas time, thing. we yeah. all yeah, there's a horse-drawn carriage, like so it's not like I don't know. It's a thing that it's everyone's a thing done that people
0: do, and they're horrible to the horses. Just FYI, are they really? Yeah. What do they do? There's all these petitions to get it stopped because it's just really hard on the horses. And they, I mean,
1: it does seem because it's very busy. And yeah,
0: like... yeah. I've never been on one because. Well, only recently is it because the the how I was gonna say I went as a kid. I've never been as a kid. I never I've never been on one, but I always wanted to go on one until I learned like what horrible conditions the horses are put through and so then I was like, Nope, I'm not gonna go on one of those.
1: How about for the holidays we strap peanut to a sleigh? <laughs> Would that make you feel comfortable? No, no. To Poor be peanut. hauled around by an old diabetic dog. No, it's okay. We won't do it. <laughs> so life was grand. They were so in love. Then, after two whole months of dating, Robert proposed. Great. That's all you need. Two months. Four carat diamond ring. Ooh. She man. said, "Hell yes." Yeah, of course she did. <laughs> and they immediately began making plans. They were going to get married on Valentine's Day of 1991.
0: Ooh, so romantic. How do you feel
1: about a Valentine's Day wedding?
0: Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, Valentine's Day doesn't like, I've never been that into Valentine's Day, so mm-hmm. meh. Yeah. It's kind mm. of a made up holiday. Ooh, hot well, takes with Brandy. This year I celebrated Valentine's Day by filing for divorce. Oh
1: yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Was it on Valentine's Day? Yeah, I filed
0: for divorce on Valentine's Day. Well, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. It's
2: okay. <laughs>
0: Look where I am now, Kristen. Damn right. Doing A (laughs) OK.
1: So they've got these plans to get married on Valentine's Day, but there was a problem with that. What? Well, they'd have to wait like a couple months. And after Christmas. (laughs) After Christmas. Wasn't soon enough? Wasn't soon enough. Well, imagine being a fucking psychopath and trying to hide the fact that you're a fucking psychopath from someone. You'd be like, yeah, we need to get married in 10 days. That's true. Mm -hmm. You
0: can't let the psychopath show through until Mm -hmm. you got him in the bag, in the body bag. I'm sorry. I I realized (laughs) the
1: second I said in the bag that that was the wrong thing to say. Okay. so Robert's like not wanting to wait. So after Christmas, he was like, hey, let's elope. So they did. Where'd they go? I don't know. You don't know. All I know is it was a fucking bad call. Yeah. (laughs) Turns out Robert Courtney was super fun to date, like the best guy to date terrible guy to marry oh no he was obsessed with appearances specifically her appearance of course so you know he'd lost this weight and he was like hey if i've done this you know you're not going to gain a pound oh lord yeah when they were hanging around at home he would get very upset if she dared to wear like sweatpants or some shit so the rule was no sweatpants no at all times brandy you had to be dressed perfectly nails had to be done hair had to be done
0: At all times. When I get home from work. Yes. Like the first thing I do is like throw my hair up in a ponytail because it's been down in my face all day. Mm -hmm. I just want it out of my face. And then I put on my flannel pajama pants. Yeah. Who wears jeans (laughs) in their own home? No one. And just like sprawl out on the couch. (laughs) (laughs) Just starfishing on the couch. That's exactly right.
1: (laughs) So that would not have flown with robert courtney mm. ma'am and
0: i know you care what his opinion I is do. So. i wonder if david's opinions on that will change after we get married do you think after we get married he'll be like no more of this flannel pants and ponytails yep he's just waiting he seems, seems just like him <laughs> so you know
1: everything had to be perfect looks wise yeah and certain other things had to go She drove a Pontiac Fiero, Mm, and Robert was not okay with that a bit. He said, as long as you're married to me, you'll drive a BMW. Oh. Doesn't seem too bad. No. (laughs) At, At one point, he was like, you know, I want you to go find a house for us to live in, and she was like, yeah, okay. So she went, and she saw some houses she liked, but he hated them because they were never grand enough. Wow. Which was confusing, because Robert Courtney was the king of mixed messages. One minute, he'd be like, I'm the king of the world. I've got more money than God here. Money, 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 money. He'd be bragging about all the donations he made to his church, which I'm sorry, that's got to be a sin, right? Right. Talking about how they needed all these grand possessions, blah, blah, blah. But then the next minute, he'd be like, oh, my parents are always hitting me up for money, which Betty later said, like, I never saw any evidence that his parents were actually Mm -hmm. doing it. But it was something he said all the time. Yeah. Yeah. At one point, I'm wondering if you remember this part from the episode. I think this is terrible. It's all terrible. But here we go. He came up with a way to save some money. (laughs) Do you remember? I do. (laughs) Here was his idea. When they'd go out to a restaurant, he could order an entree. But she couldn't. She could just have some of the food off of his entree. Absolutely not. And that was his money-saving scheme. No.
0: I have a theory on that. What? That was how he was going to ensure she stayed thin. It was less about money and more about control over her figure. I think it's control over everything. Well, yeah, yeah. it's definitely control in general. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe.
1: I just think he sounds like a world-class asshole.
0: Yeah. A super douche. A
1: super douche, if you will. Yeah. When did
0: we introduce super douches? I don't, I don't remember when super douche came in. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: so things went
1: bad in this marriage very quickly and good for her for getting out when she did because she did not like the way he was treating her at one point she says that she witnessed him hit his daughter and she was just like no nope i'm out they had been married for four or five days holy shit and she was like peace out i hate you oh my gosh a few months later they got an old wow so that had to be humiliating but don't worry. Robert learned his lesson.
0: No, he married somebody else super quick right after that. Ah. This time, she was younger and easier to control.
1: Damn right. There we go. <laughs> so the lesson was, don't date someone your own age who's likely to call you out on your bullshit yeah. and actually know a thing or two about the world. So he starts dating someone younger. And in 1994, he married his third wife, Laura. They eventually had twin boys together. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he had her sign a prenup. Yes. Years went by, Brandy, and things were great. Our poor hero, Robert, had finally found love. And he was such a great guy because he was making bigger donations than ever before to his church. In fact, in 1999, he pledged a million dollars to the church's building fund. Great. And he just had a million dollars laying around, right? Well, you know, he was certainly bringing quite a bit in. Mm -hmm. Pharmacists are known for being multimillionaires, so there's nothing sketchy going on
0: here. I I think pharmacists make good money. I don't know if they're known for being multimillionaires. Hmm, That's weird. That's that's
1: very odd, isn't it? (laughs) Um, Things were obviously going great for him professionally. He opened a second pharmacy in Merriam, Kansas. It was called... Okay, so when I listened back to... The first episode. And I'm sorry, guys, because my, my script really hasn't changed much. But you were like, oh my God, yeah, where? Because I live in Merriam, Kansas. You ready? Yeah. 8901.
0: <laughs> you weren't ready. I wasn't ready. I didn't thought you were going to
1: tell me the name of the pharmacy. It was called Courtney's Pharmacy. Oh, well, that's not helpful. No.
0: West 74th Street?
1: Yes. Is it like a CVS now? I didn't bother Googling it.
0: No, it's at the hospital. You ever been there? To the hospital? Yeah, that's where I was born. Yeah. <laughs> wow! So apparently, oh, I actually know exactly where this building is. There's a lab in here that I get my blood drawn at. Oh. Sometimes I have seen this pharmacy. That See, is I, weird. So this is a medical building on the campus of Shawnee Mission Medical yes. Center. Yes. yes, yes, I have. There is. There's actually a lab in here that I go and get my blood drawn at for when they check my thyroid levels. Do you get your prescriptions filled? There? I do not. Okay, where, I, where do you think I get my prescriptions filled, Kristen? Walgreens. Obviously. You fucking love Walgreens. <laughs> I drank the Kool-Aid when I was sixteen. I was gonna say, like,
1: <laughs> I mean, the places I worked as a kid, like limited to I'm not going back there.
0: <laughs> TGI Fridays, no thank no, you. Thank you. First of all, neither of those are around anymore. TGI Fridays? There's no TGI Fridays anywhere here.
1: Yeah, because I worked there and they had to shut they, down. Yeah,
0: they were like, well, fuck, this one's going under. You're right,
1: limited to, yeah. They, they I think that's Justice ago. now. I think they rebranded it right. as Justice. And I go there all the time. Yeah, I know. You have all <laughs> those sweatpants that say Justice across the butt. <laughs> and this shirt, it's not supposed to be uh, <laughs> A belly shirt.
2: <laughs> but it is.
1: I'm a size 14 in girls. <laughs> so... I do want to say one thing about this pharmacy. From what I've heard, Robert was never actually behind the counter there. It was just, you know, he was just the douchebag collecting money. Okay, great. Excellent. (laughs) By the early 2000s, he owned $18.7 million in assets.
0: Jeez. By the 2000s and then 90, he made $48,000? Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Something happened. It's quite the upward trajectory he was on. You
1: think he went on like a Tony Robbins conference? (laughs) That's exactly what it was. He did the Yes Man thing. (laughs) The Yes Man thing? What's that? The fucking movie Yes Man. Oh, God, that was a terrible
0: movie. I know it was a terrible movie, but he said yes to everything, and look how well it worked out for him. Do you want to dilute cancer meds? (gasps) Yes. Do you want to be a psychopath? Yes. Yeah, so,
1: guys, this is basically a lesson for us all. If you dream it, you can do oh, it. No. Oh, no. there's nothing wrong with being a pharmacist who's making millions. That's totally normal. Ask any pharmacist you know. They're all billionaires. I don't think so. So, yeah, he's making great money. Uh, one could say suspiciously great money. Yeah. But things were getting kind of weird. Because in the late 90s, Robert Courtney, despite being this big-time pharmacist, was developing a terrible reputation with pharmaceutical sales reps. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that sales reps didn't like Robert Courtney was because he was super cagey. And I don't know the ins and outs of that field, yeah. but my understanding is it would be pretty normal for them to ask him basic questions like, how many of this drug are you selling? You know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And he wouldn't tell them. He didn't want to tell them any basic info. Uh-huh. The pharmaceutical sales rep who disliked him the most was a man named Daryl Ashley. Daryl worked for Eli Lilly and he'd known Robert Courtney for quite a while. And in 1998, Daryl somehow figured out that Robert Courtney was selling three times more chemotherapy medication to the doctors in the research medical tower than he was buying from Daryl Ashley. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. How the hell would that be happening? Mm, I have a guess. This was obviously very strange, so Daryl alerted his employer, and Eli Lilly launched an internal investigation into Robert Courtney. But don't worry, don't worry, the investigation turned up jack shit. Yeah. They found zero evidence that Robert Courtney was doing anything illegal, which I would love to know
2: what What the the hell- investigation
1: entailed? Yeah. What's your gut feeling on this? Yeah. I think it's fine. Okay. Okay. Must be good. But Daryl was no dummy. In the spring of 2001, he was talking to a nurse in Research Medical Tower. You know, he was still feeling like something was up. So he told her, hey, fun fact. Did you know that Robert Courtney sells three times more chemo drugs than he buys from wholesalers? And the nurse was like, ooh, shit. Yeah. So that nurse went to Dr. Verda Hunter. And the nurse said, hey, I don't know if this is true, but here's what Daryl Ashley just told me. And Verda freaked out. She was an oncologist and by that point she'd been using Robert Courtney as her office's pharmacist for years. Wow. And hearing this information made everything click into place. Verda had all these cancer patients obviously who were going through chemo, but no one was improving.
2: Mhm. Uh-huh.
1: And a lot of the people weirdly were not having such a tough time with chemo. Yeah.
0: Oh, well, just imagine, like, the false hope that that gives you. Exactly. Exactly. So they went
1: into this in this episode of American Greed. And one woman who was getting her drugs from Robert Courtney said that after her fourth round of chemo, she felt good. Mm -hmm. She gets a fifth round. She gets a sixth round. She felt fine. And just exactly like what you were saying, you're not you wouldn't be suspicious of that. You'd be like, oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. Things are great. Look how I must be getting better. I must be getting stronger. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Everyone else is losing their hair. Everyone else is saying they're miserable. I'm I'm okay.
2: Yeah.
1: Another woman whose husband was getting his medication from Robert Courtney said that her husband didn't have any of the nasty side effects you're supposed to get with chemo. But then he went to another facility where they were doing like more experimental treatment And then he went through like fucking real chemo and then, you know, he lost his hair and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. So Dr. Verda Hunter had all these patients who weren't experiencing the level of side effects that they should have experienced from chemo. And then she had this nurse telling her this rumor about Robert Courtney selling a ton of chemo, but only buying a little bit. And Verda was like, I have to do something. Yeah. So she took one of the prescriptions that Robert had filled and she took it to a lab And she had them test the drugs. I love this woman. Yeah. When the results came back, they were alarming. The drugs had been diluted. So she called in the motherfucking FBI. (laughs) Which we always get to this point in certain stories where they're like, and they called the FBI, as if there's like a hotline hotline to call in the FBI. I need more info. But anyway, all we get to know is that she called the the FBI. FBI. She's like, 1 800 FBI.
0: Uh huh. Hello. Something alarming has happened.
1: So the funny thing is... And then they came
0: to research Medical Tower, and they just went in SWAT style and shot Robert Courtney. (laughs) (laughs) I wish they had. God. It's not funny. I'm sorry. He deserves
1: it. Yeah. I mean, he's a shit human being. Yeah. I'm trying to... uh, He's just...
0: Yeah. He's the worst.
1: Yeah. So the funny thing is that this crime was so horrifying and so, like, unheard of. I mean, until this point, who would ever suspect a pharmacist of anything... Besides filling your prescription. Right. You know? <laughs> that the FBI agents were like, there's got to be a logical explanation for this. And there was. Robert Courtney was a shitbag who was diluting drugs. Yeah. So the FBI... I were going
0: to tell us a whole different explanation.
1: No, they, re- they really thought there had to be some kind of mistake or, you know, just like, they didn't want to jump to that conclusion that, oh my God, he's taking advantage of the fact that these people are late stage cancer patients who have a chance of dying anyway and he's diluting their drugs and you know making who knows how much. Mm -hmm. So the FBI asked Verda to be part of a sting which was kind of tough because obviously when she got those lab results back the first time she was like well I'm not using Robert Courtney again. Right. So for the sting to work she had to go back to him and be like hey buddy uh I'm so sorry I quit you that was really uncool can we put all that behind us? Can you give me some more of your shitty diluted drugs? Right. And Robert was like, "Sure, no problem. I'm mad, but I forgive you." So, when I'm not turn your
0: money down. Man. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, he filled a bunch of prescriptions which the FBI tested, and yeah, they were diluted. Like big time mm-hmm. diluted. On August 13th, 2001, law enforcement swarmed the pharmacy. Robert was super friendly and calm. The whole time. So they didn't like break windows and like, you know, like when they swing in. I think that's only in movies. Damn. Do you want me to make it up? Yeah. Okay, they swung in and like <laughs> they knocked down all those shelves with, oh, all the yeah, drugs, with all the pills on them. And they were like, who cares? They're useless drugs anyway. And people were like,
0: oh. Excellent. Really. A lot of old
1: ladies yeah, were harmed. Sure. Yeah. Several old ladies were harmed so when the shelves fell down. Which you have to ask, why'd they do it that way? Couldn't they have just walked in? But no, Brandy had to have I it had this had way. To have it this way. <laughs> Sorry, old ladies. The next day, he was charged with adulteration and misbranding medication. Yeah, you made that same face the last time I said adulteration. It
0: sounds very weird. Yeah. Not cheating. Not the same as adultery. Either. No. <laughs> okay. Robert ended Did up Did you look up what adulteration is for this episode?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> Hang on.
0: <laughs> is that when you like talk down to someone as if they're a child?
1: <sighs> the action of making something poorer in quality by the addition of another substance. Ooh. Wow. Maybe by episode 200, I will be <laughs> looking up terms that I don't know before putting them into a script. How about that? Excellent. Is that too high a bar? That's No, I think that's just... <laughs> right where you want to be. <laughs> so Robert ended up turning himself in. But before... I mean, he turned himself in. They swarmed the pharmacy. So th- this is uh, unbelievable to me, too. But it seems like... They swarm the pharmacy and he's allowed to like go home for the day because yeah, the next day he was charged and the next day he... I know, I don't like it either. But before he turned himself in, he dropped off a bag of cash and 100 doses of Prozac for his wife. Excellent. Then he attempted to transfer her $5 million. And they froze his assets. Okay, interesting thing. The government did block that
0: uh-huh but two million of it somehow got to her before they could block yeah, it. yeah so they usually typically i think well i don't know that's still a lot to let through but typically they only hold a portion of the amount like on a large transaction
1: you've been transferring millions
0: of dollars no i had this happen on a much smaller amount of money <gasps> oh that's recently. right the car, yes, yes, yeah it was a whole thing i cried at the bank it was you want to talk about it <laughs> no kristen i don't i'm not okay. over it yet okay i'm sorry i didn't need to bring no, up i sold my car and like when i put my check in it was a like fucking cashier's check and they still held half of my money for like 10 days well a cashier's check you can't trust those it's as
1: good as cash i kristen. know i know that's what's so funny about it like
0: give me my damn money i know and i had a whole plan worked out on getting a new car and it was just uh oh, it all worked out in the end Did you call anyone names? I didn't. I just kept saying, this is so frustrating over and over
1: again. (laughs) Brandy, you're so sweet.
0: (laughs) Well, wasn't the poor girl the bank's fault? I know, I know, I know. Yeah. (laughs) She tried to help me. She made some phone calls, but it's very frustrating. (laughs) Do you understand how frustrating this is? I think I said that about five times. And did she say yes every single time? She said, I really do. Oh. I was like, I don't think you do. Oh, no, I feel really bad. I don't her. think I said that, Okay, actually. yeah, <laughs> you probably didn't. I Knowing think I, did, I think I was, uh, like, holding back tears at that yeah, point. Yeah, and then you didn't want to talk. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's fine. I'll figure it out. So you had that
1: cashier's check for, like, $2 million. Yeah, it was but, $2 million. But um, Robert Courtney had one for $5 million. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I should mention, okay, so that money that did go through to Laura, it was eventually put into a victim's fund. So, oh, okay. like, yeah. She didn't get to hold on to it. Yeah, she shouldn't. Yeah. Mm, Do you think she knew, though? About the scheme? Yeah. There's no evidence to support the idea that she did. She was a victim, too. Okay, I'm sorry. I've been a real <laughs> douchebag to victims
0: lately. Like that case you <laughs> yes. did. I'm still conflicted. I know, but. D- Okay, I gotta tell you the update on that thing. What's the update? Okay, so you're talking about the Kelsey Barrett case. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so. Remember the whole deal was that Crystal Kenny was the girlfriend and she turned the prosecution star witness and got Mm -hmm. a deal and whatever. And she cleaned up the murder scene. She was the one that cleaned up the murder scene. And yeah, you were a real dick about her. I was. (laughs) And I was like, I think she was a victim too. And you know, tried to get her killed before trial. Hey, by the end of the episode, I stopped being a dick, but there was a,
1: there was a long section in there where I wasn't.
0: Do you remember where I told you that the defense filed a motion to try and present an alternate suspect at trial? Oh, my God. Was it her? It was her. So they filed that and then never filed the additional paperwork to say who the suspect was going to be. They still fucking tried to do it at trial. I just read all about this. And they still tried to present her as the alternate suspect, as the real mastermind behind the whole thing. And it got objected and the judge sustained it. it. And so, like, they didn't get to do it. But that was their plan at fucking trial. That's not a bad plan. To try and pin the whole thing on Crystal Kenny. It's not a bad plan. It's not a bad plan. She really was a victim. I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> you dick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to Robert Courtney okay. and his wife, who the who money was also a victim. Also a victim. <laughs> so when he was finally in custody,
1: he was like, "Hey, hey guys, I'm going to come clean here. Here's what I did. I have been diluting drugs for months, years, months, years." Oh, it's just terrible. I've diluted three whole types of medication. Way more than that. And I am just so gosh darn sorry about the 34 people that this has affected. 100s Mm-hmm. And the FBI was like,
0: bullshit. Tip of the iceberg, buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: You've been doing this for a very long time. It has affected God knows how many people. And you messed with way more than three types of medication. So yeah. calm the F down. Yeah. The question is. Why'd you do it? For money. Well, well, no, Brandy.
0: Also, he was probably like one of those. Oh, I think we talked about this. I think this came up on the, we did this case before. I think he had like one of those angel of death things. I think you're right. Yeah. He
1: I think some you're sick absolutely satisfaction
0: right. out of playing God. Yeah. And I think it shows
1: in the way he would talk to patients and like walk them to uh-huh. their cars and all that stuff. Yeah. He was a big fucking creep. Yeah. You ready for the explanation? Oh, yeah. It's totally understandable great we're all gonna get it okay uh so why dilute the potentially life-saving drugs of cancer patients well you see robert was in a bit of a pickle he'd pledged that million dollars to his church and money was getting tight so what was he supposed to do just not pay it yes the church needed to add on to their building brandy
0: Mm -hmm. do you not have a heart i do have a heart but do you not enjoy buildings you know what's less important or what's more important than a building people's lives oh well that's a good take
1: (laughs) Obviously, Brandy, the Christian thing to do was to take advantage of some very sick people. Oh, That's right. what God would want. That's definitely what God wanted. God wants the new fellowship wing <laughs> yeah. on the church. By the way, I, okay, obviously the church is not to blame at all. No. I did go to the church's website in their history section. They don't mention Robert Courtney, I, obviously. Imagine that. But they do mention that they did get that building addition.
0: Oh, yeah. so it's been completed, huh? Yeah. great. Right, right.
1: Not great. Real good. By this point, the story was all over the news. And that's how a lot of people found out what their pharmacist was up to.
0: That is horrifying to me. Yeah. That you could find out that your meds had been tampered with by seeing a news story.
1: It was just too big. It affected so many people that it was like there was no way that they were going to get a hold of everybody. The FBI set up a victim hotline and they got hundreds of calls a day. In total, 3,000 people called in. People were terrified. They were angry. A person on the episode of American Greed said, My mother's been dead for two years, and I was at peace with it. Now it's all up in the air again. Mm. On August 23, 2001, a grand jury indicted Robert Courtney. He faced 20 felony counts, including tampering with consumer products and adulterating and misbranding drugs, which we now know what adulterating means. That's right. Thanks thanks to to you you and Google. (laughs) (laughs) But he did not face murder charges.
0: Yeah. It would have been too hard to prove. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It would have tied the case up for so long. Yeah, because you have to... (laughs) The prosecutors
1: needed a strong enough case against this guy. Yeah. And that's the shitty thing about what he did. He took advantage of people who were very likely to die anyway. So how does the prosecution prove, oh, the reason this person died is because of what he
0: did? Yeah. How do you say it's not ovarian cancer? Exactly. Well, and additionally, right, they would have to prove malice, too. And so they would have to prove that he wasn't doing this just for financial gain. And the death was like an outcome of that. Well, that's malice to do it for financial gain, isn't it? I think that they would have to prove that he was intentionally trying to kill people to be able to convict him of murder. Otherwise, it'd be like negligent homicide. Yeah, but he should have known that that would kill people. He would have known. He would have known that there could have been a possibility. But if he couldn't have known...
1: Oh, yes, he could have. I think it'd be
0: very difficult to prove because you're dealing with people who are already sick.
1: Yeah, I agree that it would be very difficult to prove first-degree murder. Yeah. Because... But to me, it's more like... God, we're getting into some legal terms here. I and know. More, but like proximate cause. Yeah. Like you would have to prove that like he was the reason. Right. And how do you prefer? How do you prove you that can't. he was the you reason? Can't. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. You know, he was for sure. Well, no, you don't. Even, he was probably a factor.
0: Yeah. He was a factor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah but someone, it would be it would be impossible to prove murder. I bet you could make the case pretty well to the jury. But yeah, I mean, it would it, be so circumstantial. And the defense would have a great time saying, These people were already sick. Prosecution has not proven to you that they wouldn't have died without the intervention of Robert Courtney. Get me on that jury.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll make the leap. Initially, Robert Courtney pled not guilty. Uh-huh. Which how can you how yeah, how? Good God. How? But he eventually changed his plea. In his confession, he admitted that this went far beyond chemo. He admitted to diluting 72 types of medication, dating all the way back to 1992. Wow. And again, that's if we believe that. Yeah. I mean,
0: who knows? I think one of the things that is super upsetting is... Um, gosh, and I don't want to take away from the cancer patients. I don't mean no. that at all by this. But he was diluting fertility drugs. Oh, he was I diluting was, all oh, kinds yeah. of and stuff. And so, like, people who are going through like the most emotional struggle of their life like and they're doing crazy things to their bodies to try and get pregnant and like they're not even getting what they're supposed to get like i just think that that is just such a play on people's emotions and like uh it's just disgusting
1: you know what's really funny is the first time we did this i mentioned so you know he he diluted all kinds, all of, kinds stuff, of stuff stuff yeah. for aids patients stuff you know all, yeah. all kinds of stuff and yeah fertility drugs too that first time, I the fertility stuff just blew right past me. I was yeah. very focused on cancer and AIDS yeah. and all that. But yeah, I was thinking about the harm you caused. And it's like, okay, if you were going to Robert Courtney for a certain amount of time, who knows how many couples missed out on their chance to have yeah. a child yes. because of this guy. You yes. know, it's not just people who died. It's people yeah. who mi- missed out on something they really wanted. Yeah, God yeah that's awful it is it's awful so let's talk scope he does wash
0: <laughs> Listerine
1: <laughs> for me or right now that nasty
0: prescription stuff that's that I'm right nope. so according to my yeah. mom my yeah. dental expert always listerine always go for listerine really yeah why Because it actually disinfects. It's so scope is just giving you fresh breath. It's not killing any additional germs. It's deodorant, not antiperspirant. That's correct. Okay. Okay. That's correct.
1: Is that why Listerine like burns? That's why burns. Yeah, it's actually disinfecting. Hurts so good. That's right. (laughs) So potentially, he diluted ninety eight thousand prescriptions from four hundred doctors, and he affected four thousand two hundred patients. Oh my gosh i mean that's why this is one of those things where like we've had people reach out and be mm-hmm. like oh yeah i know Ugh, the scope was huge yeah we the were just talking about this huge.
0: case with david's family and their grandmother was getting drugs from robert courtney no way yeah stop what what was she i i don't i know nothing more than that damn it Breen. <laughs> how can you hear that and not ask... what'd she think of him i literally have said everything that i know kristen (laughs) who are
1: you who are you you
0: just sat there you heard that and you just just like a quick conversation at thanksgiving no you gotta let the thanksgiving (laughs) conversation oh yeah did grandma die from it is that the next question i should ask no no
1: here's how you do it oh my gosh you're kidding wow so what was her take on You, you go in you tread lightly my friend not, is that why she's no longer that, with is us? Is that how she died? Ooh. Oh. <laughs> Did he die? <laughs> Fine. Feel David, like David, fill us in, please. I feel like I'm talking to Norman right now. Norman
0: comes home with this shit all you know, the time. No, and usually that kills me. It does. Yes. I need all of the information.
1: Yeah. Norman comes home with a super intriguing story that is one sentence long. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Where's the rest? Yeah. I just
0: ran my full face into the microphone. It's
1: only episode 100. (laughs) Don't worry. We'll get better. So Robert Courtney says he
0: did it for the money. Yeah. I don't believe it. No, I don't either. I think he absolutely got satisfaction out of playing God.
1: I think he I think he loved everything about it. I think that's one of the reasons why he gave so much to the church. Yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons why initially people were like, oh my God, but he was such a good guy. No, he was a total fucking weirdo. Everyone knew he was weird. Yeah. But when you've got this guy who's donating big time to his alumni association, yeah. donating money to his church, then people are like, oh, he's, yeah, you know, he's, yeah. he's stern and kind of quiet and he seems like a total super douche, but hey, we like him. All right. Yeah he's no, actually don't. pretty normal no. sometimes no he's not What's well it's like fucking dennis raider i know but he wasn't given money he was just no it. but he was the deacon of his fucking church and people were like oh yeah he's kind of harsh you know he's yes. a little stickler he killed a dog for yeah. no reason <laughs> and uh we did see him well, with that photo man. shoot <laughs> no <laughs> Dennis Rader's scary as shit. Oh, yes. Um, the time you covered his case, I yeah. about crawled out of my skin and just left the room. Goodbye. Uh. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not even done with this. Um, <laughs> in December of 2002, U.S. District Court Judge Ordie Smith said, your crimes are a shock to the conscience of a nation. You alone have changed the way a nation thinks about pharmacists, the way the nation thinks about prescription medication, The way a nation thinks about those institutions, we trusted blindly. Mm -hmm. Robert Courtney was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison.
0: Um, Think about that for a moment, what that judge said. Have you ever gotten your prescription from your pharmacist and like checked what that pill is to make sure that it is what it's supposed to be? Never. Never once. Mm -mm. You just take it. Yeah. Yeah. I take thyroid medication every day. And I go and I pick up my prescription and I take whatever the fuck is in that bottle without even a thought. And I take my Flintstone gummies. (laughs) I don't know if I'm getting Fred or
1: Wilma or what. I just eat them. (laughs) No. Yeah. You you trust your pharmacist. Funny enough, I think you trust your pharmacist almost more than you trust your doctor yes. because people
0: for, for, for whatever, whatever, whatever yeah. your doctor says you go and you like do some googling i like a second opinion yes here. but no when a pharmacist hands you your prescription you just take it
1: yeah it's like it doesn't occur to us that something could go
0: wrong yeah there. that there's any room for error or fraud huh. welcome to paranoia folks you know we declared we were going to flip off every pharmacist no, I know
1: we did <laughs> so then came the civil suits do you remember i was so embarrassed when we covered this case because like in the beginning it was going to be all like criminal trials yeah. and then i realized that we had no criminal trial for this case anyway yeah. my how we, things have changed yeah we love the civil suits we're all loosey-goosey now that's right especially you wow Not <laughs> just... <laughs> Oh, that hurt my mouth oh. when you said wow yeah did you stretch it too much you air. blew out a stitch? No, I don't think I blew out a stitch. <laughs> I don't know, just sometimes the air hits it. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Anyway. Are you still
0: off straws? You're not supposed to use straws? Yeah, for I'm a not while. doing straws. I'm very yeah. paranoid. Yeah. I'm also long, not smoking. Right? <laughs> how long till you are allowed to use straws again?
1: I don't know, but do you know how hard it is for me? Do you know how I know, much I love, fucking love straws. straws? And by the way, guys, I do. You know, she's just reusable straw. Yeah, yeah, she cares worry. about the
0: planet. Whoa. Uh, wow! <laughs> wow!
1: Well, do you want to tell them what I did at lunch? We, oh you? my gosh! We went to a place. This is very upsetting. They had ketchup packets and not like just a jar. And so we got... Okay, first of all, it's not a jar.
0: Nobody has a jar of ketchup. Okay. A a, (laughs) A bottle. There were no bottles of ketchup. Yes, okay, okay. And so we brought over some packets to the table. We finished up. There was a packet left. Norm got ready to throw it away. And Chris goes, no, you can't throw that away. You got to put that back. And Norm and I were like, "Mm, you can't put the ketchup packet back after it's been on our table and we've all fingered it. Okay. Well, we didn't like finger bang it. I mean, we just
1: (laughs) picked it up. Yeah. We had all touched that ketchup packet. You could not put that ketchup packet back. How do you think the ketchup packets get into the container out in the restaurant? By Somebody someone who, it. yeah, who has
0: not just been eating a brisket sandwich or a whatever the fuck Norm had. Okay. It looked delicious. Look, bottom line, bottom line. We all had shit all over our hands. So they convinced me that, yeah, you're not supposed to put it back. Okay. So Kristen was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, you can, you can take it home with you, but you cannot put it back. And Kristen was like, thanks. I'm taking it home with me. she put it in her purse. (laughs) Listen, guys,
1: when the planet keeps on spinning, you can thank me because I took home one ketchup packet. So anyway, civil suits. Some sources say there were 300 of them. Some say 400. But the one most people remember is Georgia Hayes' civil suit. Do you remember when I fucked
0: up her quote? I know. And then I laughed for 10 minutes.
1: I know. I feel like that's when we got the personality of the podcast down. (laughs) So she had ovarian cancer, and an oncologist testified that because of the diluted medication, I keep saying diluted, as in like, that medication was so wrong. (laughs) Georgia received from Robert Courtney. She probably missed her best chance to cure the cancer. Mm. She would likely die of ovarian cancer. At the time, Georgia Hayes said, here we go. Can I do it? Yes. Have I learned a damn thing? If I had my wish... They would paint all of our faces on his cell block wall so that when he goes to sleep at night, we are the last thing he sees. And when he wakes up in the morning, we are the first thing he sees. Nailed it. You know what has changed from episode one to episode 100? You learned how to read. (laughs) (laughs) Hooked on phonics worked for me. No. So back then, when I had somebody's quote, I would just paste it in as it was written. Yeah. But when I looked back on that script for this one and like changed some things around, I was like, oh, there needs to be a comma there.
2: Mm. Mm. You
1: edited the quote. Without adding or taking away any meaning, just making it so that it was possible for me to read it out loud. <laughs> God damn, we are professionals now. <laughs> The jury awarded Georgia Hayes $2.2 billion. Oh, my gosh. But it was symbolic. Yeah. All of Robert Courtney's assets had been seized, and Georgia knew going into it that she wouldn't see any money from the case. But people weren't just mad at Robert Courtney. They were mad at Eli Lilly and Bristol Myers Squibb, too. People thought that the pharmaceutical companies should have known or maybe they did know Mm -hmm. that Robert Courtney was you know maybe they didn't know that he was diluting drugs but they should have known something was fucking up they should have
0: known yeah there should be some kind of checks and balances that are like okay, he's only purchasing this much but he's selling this much well it's like how did Daryl Ashley have it figured out but you guys didn't yeah did
1: Daryl Ashley get a medal? I hope he got hope a he fucking did. medal.
0: I hope he got a giant medal. And it was like so heavy that he, they pinned it on him and he fell over.
1: Dr. Hunter got awarded, she which did? she absolutely should have. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, she did. she did the most. She did. Both of those companies reached a settlement with the victims. They, of course, denied any responsibility and they mm-hmm. never faced charges. But Eli Lilly settled for $48 million and Bristol Myers Squibb settled for $24 million. Where are they now? Dr. Hunter is still an oncologist and goes by Dr. Verda Hunter Hicks. So I guess she got married. Yeah. By the way, we've had people message us and say she's a great doctor. Yes. So I don't know if you're in the area. Yeah. I, she's not in Kansas City anymore. I think she's a little outside the city. Oh, okay. I I did some creepy googling. Excellent. A little. Anyway,
0: hang on. You stalked her Facebook page? No.
1: Oh wait, she's still in Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, if you need a new doctor. Well, she's an oncologist oh right okay well just
0: like uh, oh yeah yeah. where's your pcp yeah
1: okay well don't don't go to her for a wellness (laughs) check but you know (laughs) georgia hayes who was awarded the 2.2 billion dollars in the civil suit has died all of the eight patients who were named in the criminal case have died one of the fbi agents who worked the case quit the fbi to become a pharmacist wow that's nuts and in 2003 a little while after robert courtney went to prison His wife, Laura, pled guilty to making a false statement to federal agents. So this all stemmed back to the bag of cash that Robert gave her. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Robert gave that bag to his father with the instruction that he give the money to Laura. But when federal agents asked her if she knew of her father-in-law having any money for her, she denied knowing anything about it. Mm -hmm. She was sentenced to one day of unsupervised probation.
0: Great not know what the fuck unsupervised probation is. We still don't. Still don't know. You going to Google it? Yeah, I am. Okay. Unsupervised probation means you agree to not get into trouble during your probationary period. But Of there's, one day? But there's no probation officer for you to see on a regular basis, nor to pop in on you to see if you're keeping to curfew, living where you state you were going to, etc.
1: Okay, in our first episode I said that sounds like my life. That's That's any it's adult's life. life.
0: Yes. That's ridiculous. That is stupid.
1: As for Robert Courtney, I don't know if you remember this. Yeah. Do you remember your big question during the first episode? Uh, where is he? Yeah, you wanted to know. Yeah. You were obsessed with the idea of what prison is he in. Yeah. He is in Big Spring, Texas. Ooh, never heard of it. His earliest possible release date is 2027. That's not that far away. No, it's not. Ooh. I don't know if I should admit this, so we might cut this out. Mm-hmm. I read his dad's obituary. Uh hmm and you know how it'll say, like, he is survived by blah, blah, blah. So, like, Susie of Olathe, yeah. Karen of Lenexa, and it said, and Robert of Texas. Oh. Things that don't go into an
0: obituary. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, that's a terribly disturbing story. This <sighs> broke when we were in high school and I was obsessed. Yeah. yeah, I remember it so clearly. Yeah. Well, I thought there was a criminal trial. So i don't remember it so clearly but you know still do you mind if i go and get some ibuprofen
0: go ahead yeah and pop a hydrocodone if you want
1: i do want
0: i you should should. yeah you have a prescription kristen okay i'm gonna stop we're gonna stop
1: here okay brandy and i just talked about hydrocodone so i got some hydrocodone for my wisdom teeth but I was—I've been really scared to take it because I know how addictive they can be. And before—before before I had my wisdom teeth taken out, my mom was like, "Oh, I hated the feeling of that pain medication." And Norman was also like, "Oh yeah, I really didn't like it." Well, I took it, and I was like, "Oh my god, I feel so relaxed." And I was like, "Shit, I see how people get addicted to this." So now I'm afraid
0: to take any damn thing. Right? Yeah. Anyway. I told you the same thing when I had my thyroid surgery. I remember laying like in the living room with an ice pack on and having taken my hydrocodone and just like laying there and being like, this is the most comfortable I've ever been in my entire life. Yes, I can absolutely see how people get hooked on that stuff.
1: It's terrifying. It scares the shit out of me because for the longest time I was like, I just don't get it. I don't understand why all these people are (laughs) addicted to all these pills. And then I take one and I'm like, oh, this is nice. (laughs) Okay, let me go get my, my stuff
0: all right are you ready to talk about someone else with a god complex you are such a freak about this man i am i have an unhealthy obsession with charles manson and i'm not afraid to admit it okay <laughs> so obviously this is charles manson the r- 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 remix oh god
1: And <laughs> <laughs> brandy's becoming a dj <laughs>
0: Okay so sources on this are Douglas O'Linder with Famous Trials of course love you chef's kiss to him and then there's also a really great article on I think we should give him an actual kiss. We should. <laughs> <laughs> what if we could get him to come on here? Oh my god I'd freak out. I would die.
1: What if he thought we were idiots?
0: You probably would.
1: I yeah, And and I'd be like, you know what? You really Who am I to yeah. question Douglas O. Linder? Oh, yeah.
0: And then also there's a great article on the Crime Library by Marilyn Bardsley that puts this like in a great chronological order for me. And also What a shock that you looked into the crime library, huh? No kidding, right? <laughs> and then also, of course, Helter Skelter, the book by Vincent Bugliosi that I read when I was twelve. Seven. And I've read many times.
1: Is it your annual beach read? I love it. <laughs> Everyone else is Leanne Moriarty or yeah. Ellen Hildebrand, and
0: you're there with Helter, Helter Skelter. Skelter. <laughs> Put it in like a Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> <like> book jacket. <laughs> in the late night hours of August 8th, 1969, into the early morning hours of August 9th, several people in Benedict Canyon above Beverly Hills heard things, things of concern, but no one was quite sure what it was. The Cotts family, who lived some hundred yards from the home of Hollywood couples Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, thought they heard gunshots coming from the direction of the Tate Polanski home around 1230 or one in the morning. They listened for further signs of distress and upon hearing nothing, they went to bed. Around that same time, a man who was supervising a camp out about a mile down the canyon heard what he thought was a scream, followed by a plea. Oh, God, no, please don't. Oh, God, no, don't, don't. the man drove around a bit looking for the source of the cries but sounds carry in the canyon and he was unable to tell where they were coming from finding nothing unusual he returned to the campsite somewhere between two and three a.m a neighbor in the canyon awoke to their dogs barking like a lot like going crazy in the Mm -hmm. backyard the man got up to check it out but found nothing out of the norm and returned to bed then sometime after four A private security guard in the area was patrolling when he heard gunshots. He called his headquarters, who then called in the disturbance to the LAPD. And reportedly, when the LAPD took the call, they said, I hope we don't have a murder. We just had a woman screaming call in that area.
1: Wait, did they say that to the person who called in? Yeah. Oh, that's weird. Yeah,
0: that's an overshare, don't you think? Aren't they? Well, so the call in was coming from a security company, so oh, maybe they wouldn't okay. have done oh, that. Okay, you know, with like mind. a normal person. Okay, gotcha, yet. gotcha. But nothing would come of those calls that night. In fact, it wouldn't be until the next morning that a housekeeper would show up to work and discover the source of all the mayhem that had been heard that night. Winifred Chapman arrived at the gate. At one zero zero five zero Cielo Drive. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello. You can look it up. It doesn't exist anymore. Oh the house has been demolished. It will show up if you search it though. You can see the house. One zero zero five zero Cielo Drive. It's a beautiful house. It was demolished in 1994. Oh, yeah. There is a house that has been rebuilt there, but they actually readdressed it. And so it's got a different address now. I don't blame you. Not at all. Yeah. And actually, so they built this like Italian style mansion there and it has not sold. Like I believe to this day it stands empty because no one wants to live on that property. Wow. One article that I read said that no agent will list the property because of its history. Yeah. But this happened in 1969. The property didn't get torn down until 1994. Uh-huh. So I know at one point, like Trent Reznor rented the house and recorded an album there. Like. how the is that? Who's Trent Reznor? Yeah. Oh, fuck, well, Austin. I'm sorry. but who? Nine Inch Nails. Oh, OK. I'm <laughs> more of a Swifty. <laughs> OK, so anyway, Winifred Chapman shows up at the house a little after 8 a.m. on Saturday, August 9th. Immediately, Winifred noticed what looked like a fallen telephone line was hanging over the gate. She made a note to herself to check the phone when she got inside and then pushed the button and the gate opened. As Winifred made her way up to the sprawling home, she noticed an unfamiliar white rambler parked in the driveway, which is like an older car. Not that old at the time, but (laughs) old now. She didn't think much of it, though. Winifred was the housekeeper of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski sharon was a beautiful hollywood actress and polanski was a well-known movie director this summer polanski had been off in europe working on a movie so sharon lonely and very pregnant had taken to entertaining herself by having friends over for like impromptu dinner parties and sleepovers quite regularly Mm -hmm. so seeing some car she didn't recognize in the driveway was not right she was like a friend of a friend has shown up yes exactly so when Winifred gets up to the house, she digs out, like, key that's in, like, a hidey hole somewhere by the door. She goes in through the back door. And once she was inside, she picked up the phone to check it. And sure enough, it was out. That wire that she had seen was definitely the telephone wire. And there was no phone service to the house. So she's walking through the house, and she noticed that the front door was open. So she had walked around kind of the side of the house and come in the back entrance. So she hadn't seen the front of the house. Mm-hmm. And so as she gets into the living room, she noticed that the front doors open and then there's like red stuff everywhere, like splashed all over the place. And so she's like, takes a second, she's trying to just like figure out what the fuck she's seeing. And then she walks over to the door, looks out of it, and she saw pools of blood, oh, like on the walkway. And then she saw a body on the front lawn. She screams, she runs back through the house, down the driveway. And she runs past the other side of the Rambler that had been parked there and sees now for the first time that there is a body inside the car. She screams again. She runs over to... The neighbor's house, the cots that I mentioned earlier, she bangs on their door, but they're not home. So she runs to the next house. And like, this is a very nice neighborhood, huge, big property. So the next house is, you know, even further away. So she's right. it's not your next door neighbor here. Like, right. it, yeah. Right. And so she runs like down the canyon to the next neighbor's house. She gets in and she calls the police and she's crying hysterically. The police arrive at the scene. They secure the scene and they walk up and they first check the car. And sure enough, there's a teenage boy slumped over, Covered in blood. Mm -hmm. Another couple officers arrive and they get up to the house and they're trying to figure out what the best way to secure the scene is because they don't have any idea like what the situation is. Right. They don't know if there's people in the house. They don't know how many dead people there are. So far, there's been reports that there are two bodies, but who knows what else there is. And so they kind of do like a perimeter check, they check the other cars that are on the property. And then they see in the like this beautifully manicured lawn, they see two bodies. There's the body of a male in his 30s and the body of a woman in her 20s. And they are just covered in blood. So much so that the woman is in like a white dressing gown, Mm -hmm. like a white nightgown. Yeah, yeah. And it is red from blood. It is, you cannot tell that it was once white. So they circle the house and they find an open window. And so two of the officers go in through the open window and the other officer goes around to the front door so that they can then come and let him in and they can clear the scene altogether. Once they do that, they get in and they notice that there's something written on the front door in blood. The word pig is written on the front door. Once they get inside, they kind of assess the scene. They see that there are, in the living room, a young woman who is very pregnant, lying on the floor. She's blood all over her and a rope around her neck. That rope then extends over a ceiling rafter down and is attached to another man oh in the room who is also dead and drenched in blood
1: so at this point they you are were telling this story so differently
0: than you. Did oh yeah i skipped yeah. all of this i gave just like a very quick overview yeah, yeah. of the murders on the first yeah. the first time i did this yes so they at this point have two bodies inside the house and three bodies outside the house so they're checking the rest of the scene they find nobody else but as they're searching they hear a voice. They can't figure out where it's coming from. And then they hear a dog. And so they're trying to figure out where the voice and the dog are coming from. And they finally trace it to like a caretaker's house at the back of the property. And they go back there. They like bust in the door. Mm-hmm. And there's this young man, William Gerritsen, who's just like hanging out in the caretaker's house. What? He's the, He's the caretaker of the property. And they immediately place him under arrest. Yeah. And he's like, what? what the hell's going on? they're like, everybody else on this fucking property is dead and you're here. Like, obviously you had something to do with it. So they arrest him and move on with securing the scene. Eventually, all of the victims of the massacre at Sharon Tate's home were identified. The young man in the car was a teenager named Stephen Parent who had come to visit William Garrison, the caretaker. The two victims found outside the house were Abigail Folger And her, every article calls him her lover, which I hate. I hate that, too. God. Um, Wocek Frykowski. Uh In the living room, the woman was Sharon Tate, and the man was her good friend, Jay Sebring. A twenty-two caliber gun had killed, shot Steve Parent, Jay Sebring, and Wocek Frykowski. That's right. Guns don't kill
1: people. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) Of the five victims, all but Steve Parent had been stabbed repeatedly. And additionally, Jay Sebring and Frykowski had been hit in the head. Okay, I'm going to tell you how each person died, and it's terrible. Okay. So Sharon was killed with five stab wounds to her chest and back that penetrated her heart, lungs, and liver. An additional 11 stab wounds were non-fatal. So she was stabbed a total of 16 times. Her son that she was pregnant with, who she had named Paul Richard Polanski, died when she died. She was like almost nine months pregnant. (gasps) And so had someone found her soon enough, the baby likely could have survived. But yeah, it's so sad. Abigail Folger. She was the heir to like the Folgers. Folgers, Yeah, Yeah. coffee. She was Sharon's friend. They were very close friends. She was 25 years old when she died. She had led a very comfortable life, but she had given back, dedicating her life to social work. Like, she did all kinds of social work around the Los Angeles area. It was like, was she completely... a social worker or? No, she did like a philanthropist? I, like, uh, not a philanthropist, but a lot of like community outreach and stuff like that. Okay, yeah. She was stabbed 28 times. My God. Wojciech Frykowski was a longtime friend of Roman Polanski's. He was from Poland, just like Roman Polanski was. And he had met Abigail Folger through Sharon. And he had fought hard for his life. Mm. In all, it took two gunshot wounds, 13 blows to the head with a blunt object, and 51 stab wounds to end his life. Oh, my God. Yeah. Jay Sebring was a hairstylist to the stars, and he was Sharon Tate's former flame. Among his clients were Frank Sinatra, Paul Newman, and Steve McQueen. Wow. He was known as quite the ladies' man, and he and Sharon had remained close even after she ended their relationship to be with Roman Polanski. Mm -hmm. Jay Sebring was murdered with one gunshot wound and seven stab wounds. The youngest victim was Stephen Parent. He was an 18-year-old kid who happened to be visiting the house at Cielo Drive that night to see the caretaker to try and sell him a radio. Oh, shit. He had just graduated high school, and he was getting ready to go to college, and he was working all these odd jobs over the summer so that he wouldn't have to work when he went to college. And one of them was, like, buying radios and fixing them and then selling them.
1: God, that's Um, tragic.
0: Yeah, he was shot four times as he was driving down the driveway to leave the residence. So whoever had done this that night just happened to get to the property as he was getting ready to leave and shot him and killed him.
1: That's terrible.
0: Immediately rumors spread about these murders. It was a satanic ritual. Did you hear that all the victims had black hoods on? It was a drug deal gone wrong. You know how those Hollywood types are. It was a hit by the Polish secret police. What is Roman Polanski really up to in Europe this summer? Polish secret police. Yes. like These are the rumors that were Uh spreading all around the country, really. Yeah. But the police had little to go on. Their only suspect was the lone survivor of the massacre, the Mm -hmm. caretaker. He told the police that he'd been up late, you know, most of the night listening to music, playing with his dog, and then he'd gone to sleep and he hadn't heard anything. They didn't believe him. Naturally. Yeah. How could you believe that? Yeah. How could you not hear anything? People all over the canyon heard things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That very night, though, two more gruesome murders would take place. And if the police could connect them... It just might point them in the direction of the real suspects. The bodies at the Tate home are found on Saturday morning. So that Saturday night, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, along with Rosemary's 21-year-old daughter, Susan shrothers returned from a vacation, their speedboat in tow. Lino and Rosemary dropped Susan off at her apartment and stopped to get a newspaper, then arrived home at 3301 Waverly Drive. Oh, God. oh I had to shut down my computer because it's oh, such shit. a piece of shit. <laughs> oh,
1: God. Yeah, I was trying to act real cool about the fact that my computer just totally shut down. So you can't really down. see it anyway. Oh, okay.
0: There's like bushes. So they arrive home at 3301 Waverly Drive, which is in the Los Feliz area of LA. So they arrive home somewhere between 1 and 2 a.m. It actually wasn't until the next day that anybody would find out that anything was amiss with the LaBiancas. It was Sunday night around 8.30 when Frank Struthers, Rosemary's son by a previous marriage, got a ride home from a camping trip. Um uh- what the fuck is that? <laughs> It's Norman printing something? <coughs> it scared the shit out of me. What the hell?
1: That uh, was the sound of a document that
0: I tried to print three days ago. <laughs> Restarting your computer really fresh uh, into that. Uh-huh, right up, huh? Yeah. Excellent. Great. Okay, so it's like 8.30 Sunday evening. Frank, Rosemary's son from previous marriage, gets dropped off at the house in Los Feliz. He immediately is concerned that something is up because the family speedboat is still in the driveway. And that is not like Lino to do at all. Mm. Like, he immediately puts that puppy in the garage. He's very particular about how he stores stuff. And he's like, sure. that's super weird that it would still be attached to the car, still be in the driveway. Right. Then as Frank like walks towards the house, he notices that all the window shades are down again, something his parents never did during the daytime, I guess never closed the shades, rarely had them closed in the evening. So he was like, something's for sure up. So he gets the door and he knocks on the door instead of just, I don't know, using a key to go in or anything like Mm -hmm. that. And he gets no answer. So he leaves the house, he goes to a payphone and he calls the house. And again, no one answers. Calls a couple times. There's no answer. Finally, he gets in touch with his sister. So remember, they had dropped his sister off at her own apartment the day before. Right. So she's like, "Okay, yeah, that's definitely odd. I did see him last night. Like, I don't know what's up. And so she gets her boyfriend and they come and they meet Frank at their parents' house. Frank and the boyfriend go around the back of the house and they find the back door open. And so the back door walks like right into the kitchen. And so the three of them all walk into the kitchen and then they tell Susan to wait there in the kitchen while they walk through the rest of the house. As soon as they walk into the living room, they see Lino lying on the floor in his pajamas. He has a pillow like over his head and there's a cord wrapped around his neck and his pajama shirt is pulled up so his stomach is exposed
2: mm-hmm. and
0: there is like something clearly like carved in his skin oh. and then there's like a serving fork like stabbed into his torso, sticking out of his Jesus. torso. So they immediately like run out of the house. They call the police from a neighbor's house and an ambulance comes and police come. And so Lino had been like restrained with a leather tie his hands were behind his back mm-hmm. and then the cord around his neck was like the cord from a big lamp that had been tied tightly around his neck there was a pillowcase over his head that was drenched in blood and the thing that was carved in his stomach was the word war in the master bedroom the police found rosemary she was on the floor her nightgown was up over her head she also had a pillowcase over her head and a lamp cord tied around her neck And she was obviously dead as well. In this house, they found words in three different places written in blood. One of them said death to pigs. That was on the living room wall. On another living room wall, there was the word rise written in blood. Mm -hmm. And then in the kitchen on the refrigerator door, helter-skelter was written in blood. I have a question.
1: Yes. When you say written in blood... Do you mean, like, with a finger, like, you could, or do
0: you mean, I like... I think I mean, like, so I've seen the pictures of it, and what okay. it looks like to me is, like, a cloth has been dipped in blood okay. and then okay. done like that. I don't know why I needed to know, yeah. but I had to know. Yeah. So it looks to me like, yeah, they've taken some kind of fabric, mm-hmm. dipped it in blood, and then done yeah. it like that. Yeah. Okay. The LaBiancas were very well-respected people. Lino was a businessman. His father was like the founder of this grocery store chain. And Lino had followed in his footsteps, gone into the family business. And he was very well-respected. He didn't appear to have any enemies. An autopsy revealed that he had been stabbed 26 times. Um, And then he had had that, his stomach carved into Rosemary, his wife, was a 38-year-old woman who had made just an amazing life for herself. She had been orphaned as a child and then was adopted when she was 12. She had worked her entire life as like a car hop and a waitress. So she'd married young and then had a couple kids and then got divorced. And then in 1958, she was working as a waitress when she met Lino. She had made a huge business for herself. She opened this boutique and then she did like all of her own investments and she left an estate of 2.6 million dollars behind. Wow. Yeah. All adjusted for inflation, mate. I don't know. You didn't? No. Brandy. I can do it real quick though. Okay. It's funny
1: I changed very little about my script. Like the one thing I changed was I found out where Robert Courtney was in prison and I adjusted for inflation. Yeah.
0: 18.4 million dollars adjusted Holy for inflation. shit. Yeah. Almost what
1: Robert Courtney had in
0: assets. Yeah. So Rosemary had been stabbed 41 times. Oh my God. Six of those stab wounds independently were enough to end her life. Yeah. So I mentioned as one of the source materials on this is the book Helter Skelter. Mm-hmm. So I use that as a source. Also, both sources that I pulled from the crime use library that as a and too. yes, sure. they all use it. So they talk about in this article um, on crime library about how. The prosecutor, Vincent Bugliosi, talks about how there was a huge failure of communication from all the different police departments involved in this case, and mm-hmm. that there was lots of errors made, and that's why it took so long to solve, because this thing would sit for months before they would make any real headway on it, because they did not connect the cases. Yeah. The Tate murder was not connected to the Bianca murder for... Months, despite the obvious connections of the words written in blood I was and the say, abundance of stab wounds. I remember
1: when you first mentioned, when yes. back to episode one, you said that they didn't connect the cases. Yeah. But that's so unbelievable now to know that... There were words written on both crime scenes. I mean, how common is that? That someone writes in blood. blood,
0: And then that there's the same words written, like pig was written at both places. Yes. And then when you're talking about such overkill with the amount of stab wounds, that's present in both crime scenes. Yes. Not only that, there was a third murder that had happened prior to both of these, Mm -hmm. but they already had someone arrested for sitting in custody. And in that case, There had been stuff written in blood on the walls of that, and they didn't connect it to that case. So in that case, that was the murder of Gary Hinman. So that had happened on July 31st, my dad's birthday. So in that case, this guy, Gary Hinman, he was a music teacher. Mm -hmm. And he had been killed in his own home. And political piggy had been written in his blood on the wall. And then like, I think like a paw print was made. Because we'll learn later that this was all supposed to start a race war. Yeah. Anyway. And it did. It did not. And Hinman had been stabbed to death as well. Mm -hmm. So when this paw print was made in blood, the person who made it left behind some form of Palm print or something like that. Of course, to make that, you have to use your own hand. Exactly. And so they were actually able to track that case pretty quickly to this guy, Bobby Beausoleil. He was arrested. And so was this woman who helped him murder Gary Henman, Susan Atkins. So they were tracked down through some work by the LAPD to being members of this family that was living on this movie ranch just outside of L.A. Mm -hmm. So this was... Charles Manson's family Mm -hmm. so they're arrested before any of this other stuff happens But the case is not connected. And the reason for that is because there's all kinds of different independent agencies investigating these cases. And nobody would talk to anybody because the lines of jurisdiction weren't clear. And nobody wanted to give their case Mm -hmm. over to anybody Mm -hmm. else. And so some of them are being investigated by the LAPD. Some of them are being investigated by the sheriff's department. And so it was a pissing match. It 100 percent was. And so it wouldn't be until November that these cases are connected. And they have one of the key players in custody that entire time. Susan Atkins was the person who was present for all three murders. That is so frustrating. Isn't that so frustrating?
1: I feel like if there's a lesson to be learned from murderers here, it's like go county to county, go to a different state. Yes. They're never going to work together. Yeah.
0: So while they're not paying attention to how much these cases have in common, they're trying to pin this on the caretaker. They give him a polygraph and he passes with flying colors and they're like, well, fuck, it's not this guy. Was he just a heavy sleeper? In Helter Skelter, he talks about how one point like he had turned his music up really loud and he thought he heard something. And so he turned it down and he was like listening and he thought he might have heard somebody walk towards his Place and he actually thought he saw like his door handle start to turn. Oh my God. And then it stopped and he didn't hear anything else. And so he'd just gone to bed. Wow. Yeah. He legitimately didn't hear anything or slept through the whole thing. Or That guy is the luckiest guy on earth. No shit. So they clear him and now they're looking into Roman Polanski. Like, did he plan this? Was this like a hit? You know, he was... Yeah. Whatever. Okay. And Polanski is... First of all, he's devastated by the loss yeah. of his wife and his child he says that they're trying to put together all these theories like maybe it was a drug deal gone wrong that's one of their big theories at first and he's like absolutely not Sharon took no drugs before her pregnancy and she absolutely wouldn't have touched (laughs) anything during her pregnancy I would pour her a glass of wine and she wouldn't touch it this is 1969 yeah when everybody's drinking and smoking while they're pregnant yes (laughs) eating all the deli meat yeah so one month after the murders, the investigation has gone nowhere. And so Roman Polanski, along with some of his Hollywood friends, including Peter Sellers, Yule Brynner, and Warren Beatty, put together a notice in the newspaper for a $25,000 reward. Roman Polanski and friends of the Polanski family offered to pay $25,000 to the person or persons who furnish information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer or murderers of Sharon Tate, her unborn child, and the other four victims Hmm. so that's like you know a month after the murders somewhere in september of 1969 so that's right around a month after the murders This 10 year old boys playing in sherman oaks and he comes across this sherman oaks is the name of the neighborhood sherman oaks california it's an area of california wow i am from the midwest And he comes across this, like, weird revolver. It's called a 22 caliber high standard longhorn revolver. And this is oh, a yeah, rare yeah. gun. You don't know anything. <laughs> it's a rare gun. It's a weird handgun. It's got, like, a really long muzzle on it. Okay. I, I don't know. It's a weird looking gun. Yeah, neither one of us know shit about guns. No. So the gun was dirty and rusty, but it had a broken grip, handle grip. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they had found at the scene... At the oh boy. at the Tate home was pieces of a broken gun grip. right? well, right. no gun was there, and they knew a gun had been used, and that a twenty two caliber gun had been used, yeah, so he like carefully gets it and takes it to his dad, and his dad turns it into the LAPD, and they're like, "Okay, great, we'll put it into evidence. Well, around that same time, a different section of the LAPD <laughs> decides that a 22 caliber handgun with a broken grip was used in the Tate murders. Mm-hmm. And they send out a flyer, like an inter-office flyer about this handgun. Meanwhile, this gun has been turned in days earlier and God. is just sitting in an evidence locker and nobody ever connects it to it. Oh, they don't know their ass from their elbow. No, at all. So the LAPD has the gun used in the murders in their evidence locker and And nobody knows about it. at the same
1: time, they're like, I wish we could find that gun. We wish we could find
0: this gun, yes. Finally, at some point in October, someone at the LAPD talks to someone at the sheriff's office, like their buddies, and they're like, hey, we think there's a chance these Tate LaBianca murders might be related. And so somebody else is like, yeah, you know there was that other murder, that Hinman murder, where uh, we think you know that there's some similarities there. So, they get to talking and they decide to go to Spawn Ranch because that's where they know that the Manson family is living. And they know that the person that they have in custody, Bobby Beausoleil, who's been charged in the Gary Hinman murder. They know that's who he was associating with. So they go there, they talk to a bunch of people at the Spawn Ranch, including the 17-year-old girl who is Bobby's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And she says, yeah. Bobby and Susan Atkins went to Henman's house. They were supposed to get money from him. The family kind of knew him. They'd, you know, done some stuff with him before and they knew he had money. And so the idea was to just like go and get him to give them money. Well, he didn't do it. And they ended up like torturing him for three days before they murdered him. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. And they like held him captive in his own home and then they finally killed him. And so this girlfriend tells him that, yeah, Susan bragged about this after they did it. She also talked about this other fight that she got into with a man where she stabbed some man in the leg several times. Mm -hmm. Well, so now these officers are like putting it together that they have Bobby in custody. Mm -hmm. They also have Susan in custody. (laughs) And so they're like... Not "Mm, a minute too soon. I don't know. Does that sound... That doesn't sound the same, though. Gary Hinman wasn't stabbed in the leg multiple times. Like, maybe these aren't connected. And so it almost falls apart. Oh, my gosh. But somebody in the back of their mind is like, well, yeah, Gary Hinman wasn't stabbed multiple times in the leg, but Wojciech Frykowski was... Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, Susan Atkins is being held at the Sybil Brand Institute, which is like the women's detention home. Right. OK. So she shares a room with this woman, Ronnie Howard, and this other woman named Virginia Graham. And Susan Atkins won't shut her fucking mouth. She's like a nut job. She's talking all the time. She sings, she dances. And then one day she really gets talking about everything. And she confesses to everything. So they talk about why she's in there. Like, so Ronnie and Virginia are like, so what are you doing in here? And she's like, oh, I'm in for first degree murder. And they're like, did you do it? And she's like, sure. Oh, my God. And she tells them all about the Gary Hinman murder and how they think that Bobby Beausoleil did it. But really, she's the one that did all the stabbing. Bobby just held him. Oh, Wow. And then she talks about her lover, Charlie, Charlie Manson, and how he's Jesus Christ, and how he is going to lead his people to a hole in the earth in Death Valley. And he's going to grow a whole civilization down there. And she tells them all about Helter Skelter. And so they're like, come again? (laughs) And She's like, oh, yeah, Charlie knows that we have to save civilizations. We did these murders. And she tells them all about the Tate murders and the LaBianca murders and how they did them to start a race war and how they did them murders and made it look like Black Panthers did it so that they would start a race war and civilization as they knew it would end and then all that would be left, this is the most ridiculous thing, all that would be left after this race war would be they called, not my words, I promise (laughs) all that would be left would be Blackie and they wouldn't know how to handle the world and so up would come charles manson's civilization who had been hiding out in the hole in the desert and they would get to take over the world and take it back from their hole in the desert from their hole in the desert these people legit every day went out on dune buggies in the desert looking for the hole in the earth for where they would go to survive the end of the world and then come out when when that is the dumbest thing i have ever heard yes Charles Manson had all these theories about how the Beatles were sending him messages and Helter Skelter comes from a Beatles song. It's about a fucking playground ride. Or was it? Was (laughs) it about a race war? Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's clearly about a race war. Anyway, so she tells these women all about these murders and at first they're like, This girl's a fucking lunatic. Well, yeah. And then the girls are like, these women, Virginia and Ronnie, are like thinking about it. And they got like a couple of tidbits of information from Susan, like asked a couple more questions to see like if her story would stay the same. And Virginia had knowledge of what the house at Cielo Drive looked like. She had actually been there before. Weird. Yes. And so she got her to give some details about the house. (gasps) And she was like, oh, you've been in there too. Oh my gosh. And that led to Susan telling her exactly what happened that night. So this is what... Susan said. Susan said she and a group of people that were sent there by Charlie, there were four of them all together, three girls and a guy, got to the house, they got to the gate, they cut the telephone wires, they went inside, they saw the car coming down the driveway, they stopped it, inside was a teenage boy, they shot him four times and killed him because he had seen them. That kid wouldn't have known what he saw. No. Just let him go. I mean, don't do any of this. Next,
1: they just go, go up, to your hole exactly, in the desert and
0: exactly. fuck off. They go up to the house. They make entry through like a side window and they break off in different directions. Susan walks down the hallway. She walks past like the room where Abigail Folger is and she just like, Waves at her as she walks by. And this was super common for people just to stop, come in and out of the mm-hmm. house. So Susan, like Abigail waved, not knowing who she was. And Susan kept down, down the hallway and went to Sharon Tate's room. And there on the bed was Sharon Tate sitting with Jay Sebring. They were talking and she tied them up and brought them to the living room. And then at that point, like all hell broke loose. She and the others started stabbing and killing everybody. And Wojciech Frankowski and Abigail Folger ran out onto the yard and they killed them. That's why they were stabbed so many times because they had tried to escape. And then <sighs> Sharon Tate was the last to be killed. And as Susan described this, oh, it's terrible. She said, Sharon was begging. She said, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to have my baby. I want to have my baby. And Susan said, I just looked at Sharon right in the eye and said, look, bitch, I don't care about you. I don't care if you're going to have a baby. You'd better be ready. You're going to die. And I don't feel anything about it. Oh, my God. Susan, at that point, recounted about how she stabbed Sharon and how she'd gotten her blood all over her and how she tasted it. And it felt like tasting life. These girls are, like, scared shitless at this point because it's clear that this is not just some bullshit that this woman is telling and so they're like, how could, you, how could you do that? And so she's like, you guys don't understand. I thought you understood. I loved her and in order for me to kill her, I was killing part of myself when I killed her. What the fuck? I was freeing her. No. No. And then she talks them through the Tate LaBianca murders and how Charlie was upset about what the mess they had made at the Tate home the night before. And so he had actually come to the LaBianca home that night. And he was the one who had tied up Lino and Rosemary and then told them how they needed to kill them.
1: So by mess, he meant like people
0: escaping out into the lawn. Yes, and how that could have gone very badly. And yes, and how people could have hurt. Wow, how terrible would that have been if people survived? Yeah, exactly. So after... All of this comes out. Virginia ends up getting like transferred to a different place. They both are begging to have phone access to call the LAPD. And they're getting shut down every time they are asked. Like they can't get a call to the LAPD. They're both trying to report this. Finally. Why, Why were they being shut down? I don't know. Nobody would listen to them. Nobody believed anything that they People were saying. Thought they were full of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So finally, in November, like November 15th, 16th, Mm -hmm. one of them gets a call. And finally, on November 17th, LAPD homicide detectives come to the Sybil Brand Institute and they sit down with Ronnie and they're like, "Okay, tell us what you know. And so she tells them everything she knows, everything that Susan Atkins told them. And they're like, holy fucking shit. We've just hit a goldmine. She knows everything. This is legit. Yeah. These murders are connected. (laughs) Holy shit. So they move her to like segregation so that she is like safe. Right, right. And the very next day, Vincent Bugliosi is assigned to the case because they're going to move forward with charges. At this point, they've got everybody on the case in custody except for Charles Tex Watson because he went back to Texas. And so they have to extradite him. But this is not an easy case because, first of all, Bugliosi has enough. He can prove Who did the actual murders? Like That's fine. That's the easy part. But he has to prove Charles Manson's dominance over the group. Yeah. And that Charles Manson had the power to make these people do these murders, even though he was not directly involved. Yeah. So initially they go to Susan Atkins and they're like, we'll give you a deal. And she wants immunity. And they're like, nope, absolutely not. Yeah. You're a fucking murderer. Absolutely not. But we will spare you the death penalty if you become our star witness. And so she agrees. Mm-hmm. She's gonna be their star witness. She actually goes and testifies before a grand jury and gives all of the gory details that she told the women at the institute. And the judge and the grand jury like sit there like in silence after they hear all of these details. It took the grand jury 20 minutes to hand down indictments after oh hearing her God. testimony. But it would fall apart because Susan Atkins renewed her loyalty to Charles Manson after the grand jury testimony. Shut up. Yeah. So they decide they're going to try the three women. So it's Patricia Krenwinkel, Susan Atkins, Leslie Van Houten, and Charles Manson. They're all going to be tried together. Mm -hmm. Tex Watson has to be tried separately because he's fighting extradition. He's out there in Texas being a real dick, and he won't come back and face the music. Yeah. So they have another person who was present that night both nights, but had no hand in the actual murders. Her name is Linda Kasabian. So she had been the getaway driver. They had chosen her because she had a valid driver's license. Right. Like I mentioned, she was present both nights. They offered her immunity to testify at trial, which initially people were really upset about. But while she was present, she never entered either home. Mm-hmm. and had by all accounts no hand in any of the murders but she didn't do anything to stop them either yeah yeah she wasn't um, great but no she wasn't the worst she wasn't the worst but they wouldn't likely have been able to convict right charles manson without her testimony right she was the big key in showing what his dominance was what his power was over the rest of the family yeah they did find some physical evidence, like Patricia Kernwinkle's handprint was found in Sharon Tate's home. They were able to tie the gun. They finally fucking realized that they had the gun in their own evidence locker. <laughs> After all of this information about the arrests come out, yeah. the father of the kid who found it called the LAPD. Oh and he's like, God, "Hey, kidding me. Was that the gun? And they're like, what gun? Uh. And he's like, I turned in a gun. And they're like, listen, mister, you know, we don't keep guns that long. We throw him into the ocean after a while. No. And he's like are you fucking kidding me? Like I think this is the murder weapon in the largest murder case in this state's recent history. And I handed it to him. Yes. What do you mean? And the guy he talks to on the phone goes Listen, mister, we can't check out every citizen report of a gun we find. Wow. He's like, it's the fucking murder weapon. So they do finally track it down. And so they do have... Did they have to do a deep dive into the literal ocean? Right, right into the... Li- yes. <laughs> the trial officially began in June of 1970 with Vincent Bugliosi prosecuting and Judge Charles Older presiding. He sequestered the jury, and he told them that it would be a long one, but it was to protect them from harassment and prevent their being exposed to trial publicity. So it was for their own protection, really. Mm -hmm. And Judge Older was actually given a bodyguard, and his home was protected round the clock by police presence. Wow. Because the Manson family they were was capable of so much. Yeah. And they were scary as fuck, yeah. They were camping out at the courthouse constantly. They were mm-hmm. harassing media. They were harassing witnesses. They were doing all kinds of crazy shit. And it was scary as fuck. 12 jurors were selected, five women and seven men, ranging in age from 25 to 73. In his opening statement, Bugliosi said that Manson was a vagrant wanderer, a frustrated musician, and someone who would refer to himself as Jesus Christ. Oh, okay. Yeah. He said he was a killer who cleverly masqueraded behind the common image of a hippie, one of being peace and love. But he was a megalomaniac who coupled his insatiable thirst for power with an intense obsession for violent death. So he boiled the motive down to this case as really Charles Manson being a frustrated musician. He had been told that he could make it as a musician. He'd lived with Dennis Wilson for a while. When you know somebody who's in the music scene, they know a lot of people and they're like, oh yeah, I'll hook you up, I'll hook you up. So he had met this guy, Terry Melcher. Uh Terry Melcher was a music producer and Doris Day's son. Oh, wow. And one-time resident of Cielo Drive. Whoa. Yes. Like, he had lived there for a long time. Whoa. Like, Charles Manson had gone there and visited him there. Basically, Vincent Bugliosi said... This was the ridiculous act of someone who was frustrated that he hadn't made it in the music business. Wow. Yeah. They said that's why he picked that house. He knew Terry Melcher no longer lived there, but they knew the house and they yeah, wanted yeah, to send connection. a message. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know anything about his music? Um. Yeah, I've heard some of it. It's very folksy. Really? It's, yeah, it's not very good. Well, then, clearly. Yeah, <laughs> you can hear it. Like it's on the internet. Okay. Yeah, one that you for sure could is ceased to exist. If you googled that, you could for sure listen to that one. So he lays that all out, and he's like, and the big deal is that he has to prove that Charles Manson had the power to order these women to order these people to commit these murders without actually raising a hand himself. Because that's the big defense, is that Charles Manson never killed anybody directly Mm -hmm. himself. Mm -hmm. This is just one example of the control of the family, even during the trial. They did anything that they could to harass potential witnesses or halt the trial if they could. One instance of this was Barbara Hoyt. Barbara Hoyt was supposed to be a witness for the prosecution. She was a family member. She had lived on the ranch, and she was threatened that if she testified at trial, she and her actual family would be killed. So before she was to testify, somehow the Manson family lured her to Hawaii. One of the girls what? like got her to go to Hawaii with her, and then while she was there, she was given a lethal dose of <gasps> LSD. She almost died. Somehow someone found her. They got her to the hospital, and doctors you saved are her life. You are kidding alive. me. no. They would go to whatever oh. means they could to try and keep people from testifying. Linda Kasabian had to be kept in protective custody the entire sure, time. Sure, yeah. The control that Manson had over the girls was crazy, too. Susan Atkins, she recanted all of her testimony, said Mm -hmm. she'd made it all up. Mm -hmm. None of it was true after all of that testimony that she'd given to the grand jury. And of course, you know, at one point, Charles Manson carved an X into his forehead. So all three girls carved X's into their foreheads. And then one day, Charles Manson shaved his head. And so all three girls shaved their heads. And one day he wore pink. And then the (laughs) the next day they wore pink. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> judge older was terrified of charles manson well yeah he should have been yeah charles manson would just make direct eye contact with him and just stare him down at one point charles manson got mad about something and he like jumped up like from a seated position mm-hmm. this guy i i have not mentioned this i know i mentioned this the last time we covered this case charles manson is tiny he's yeah. five foot two yeah he's seated behind the defense table yeah in the courtroom From a seated position, he somehow jumps up like a fucking spider monkey and leaps at the judge and yells, Someone should cut your head off. And at that point, as as he's leaping towards the judge, like through the courtroom, all three girls stand up and start chanting in Latin. It's like a fucking mess. Like from that day forward, the judge older reportedly carried a gun under his robe because he was so terrified that something was going to happen. After 22 weeks of testimony, good God, the prosecution rested, and it was time for the defense to do their part. So the judge is like, he talks to the defense. He's like, okay, you know, the court jurors call your first witness, and the defense attorney stood up and they said, "Thank you, Your Honor. The defense rests." Mm -hmm. The courtroom was stunned. Yeah. And the girls jumped up from their seated positions, like stood there and shouted in court that they wanted to testify. The judge like shuts the court down. He gets everybody to shut up. He pulls all the defense attorneys back into chambers and he's like, what the fuck is going on here? And Leslie Van Houten's attorney, Ronald Hughes, he says, while he's in chambers with the judge, I refuse to take part in any proceeding where I am forced to push a client out the window. So yeah. he's like, these women are going to try and testify and take the fall for yes. Charles Manson. Yeah. And I'm not going to let it happen. Because at this point, they are still swearing their allegiance to him. They will do anything to try and keep him out of jail. Ugh. Yeah. Um, That's so
1: hard, though, for the attorneys, because, yeah, uh, I mean, oh, God, it's like, do you serve what is in your client's best interest or what your client thinks is in their best interest? Right. Exactly.
0: Oh, yeah. Like two days after this, that lawyer, Ronald Hughes, Leslie Van mm-hmm. Houten's lawyer, mm-hmm. disappeared
1: i remember this yes so after uh, i remember this i listened to this two days ago though. after
0: the trial was over his body was found wedged between two boulders in ventura county mm-hmm. california and later one of the manson family members admitted that the manson family had murdered him of course they did yeah did anyone ever go to jail for that or is it just no, no. it's never they were never nothing was ever prosecuted that's on awful awful Finally, like they move forward, the defense is not going to let the girls testify, but Charles Manson decides that he wants to testify. He's on the stand for hours and he makes all these big statements and mm-hmm. blah blah. I read them all last time. I'm not going to read them this time. He sounds like a fucking nut job. It was creepy. It's so creepy. And something that Beliosi said is that this guy, so Charles Manson, had spent more than half of his life in prison. He'd never had any kind of actual education, but somehow he spoke really eloquently and he sounded educated. And it was so clear to see that he could stand in front of a group of people and get them to believe what Mm -hmm. he wanted them to believe. Mm -hmm. He was so charming, so charismatic That just seeing that would show what power he had over. Well, and
1: everything was someone else's
0: fault. I mean, that's what the testimony was. It was like,
1: this is your fault. He brought up the Vietnam War. Like, I mean, blame
0: anything and everybody but him. Yeah. Finally, on January 15th, 1971, seven months after the beginning of the trial, the jury began deliberations. Mm. They deliberated for nine fucking days. I don't know what they could have talked about for nine days.
1: The only thing I can think is if they don't know that they can pin enough
0: on Charles. Right. Or are we brave enough to convict them?
1: <gasps> I didn't even think about that.
0: Yeah. That would be terrifying. I think
1: it would be terrifying. Think if fucking Charlie Manson was like staring yes. you down and be like, I don't know, he seems like a good guy.
0: Yes. Yeah, that'd be really scary. Yeah. Ultimately, they convicted all of them. And on March 29, 1971, the penalty phase began and they recommended the death sentence for all of the Mm -hmm. defendants. So Charles Manson, Patricia Krenwinkel, Susan Atkins and Leslie Van Houten were all sentenced to death. Upon delivering those sentences, Judge Older said, It is my considered judgment that not only is the death penalty appropriate, but it is almost compelled by the circumstances. I must agree with the prosecutor that if this is not the proper case for the death penalty, what should be? You know? Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I think he makes a fair point. At that point, the judge shook the hands of each juror. And he said, if it were within the power of a trial judge to award a Medal of Honor to jurors, believe me, I would bestow an award to each of you. Wow. I can't imagine having to be a juror on a case like that. Well, first of all, the length alone
1: oh, of yeah. that case. I mean, that's, that's a real chunk of your life. Yeah. And then to be part of one that's that high profile. Yeah. Ugh.
0: Later. Bobby Beausoleil, Charles Manson, and Tex Watson were convicted on the murders of Gary Hinman, and then Tex Watson was also convicted on the murders for the Tate Law-Bianca murders. Mm -hmm. In Helter Skelter, Bugliosi wrote, It had been the longest murder trial in American history, lasting nine and a half months, the most expensive to date, costing approximately $1 million, and the most highly publicized. And the jury had been sequestered for 225 days, longer than Mm. any jury before it. The trial transcript alone ran 209 volumes, 31,716 pages, and approximately 8 million words. Wow. Isn't that nuts?
1: You know what's what's funny is... It's not as expensive as I thought it would right, be. Right, yeah. Um, but just the amount of time that everyone had to take. Yeah. And I agree, they did
0: deserve medals. I mean, yeah. at the very least. Yeah. In 1972, the California Supreme Court abolished the death penalty, so all of the defendant's sentences were commuted to life sentences. Where are they now? So Susan Atkins had some kind of epiphany in jail and found jesus and wait she'd already found jesus (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) yeah and she said that a grand light came to her one day and told her that she'd been forgiven for all that she'd done in 2008 after multiple parole denials atkins filed for a compassionate release due to terminal brain cancer and her request was denied. I think this is super interesting. So Buliosi actually argued in favor of her release, saying that her medical care cost more to the state than like releasing her would, And at that point, she was going to die anyway. So they might as well just release her. Mm. But they denied it. And she died in prison on September 29, 2009. Patricia Cornwinkle is currently the longest incarcerated female inmate in the California penal system. She has been denied parole 14 times. But she has shown remorse. In 1994, she did an interview and said, I wake up every day knowing that I'm the destroyer of the most precious thing, which is life. And I do that because that's what I deserve. What I deserve is to wake up every morning and know that. Her next parole hearing will be held in 2022, and she will be 74 years old. Wow. Leslie Van Houten's first-degree murder conviction in the Tate LaBianca trial was actually overturned in appellate court in 1976 because of what happened to her attorney. So they said that Judge Older erred in not um, granting a mistrial specifically for her when her attorney disappeared. Mm. So her conviction was overturned. She was reconvicted in 1978. And she was sentenced to life in prison. She was actually granted parole by the parole board in 2016. But it was blocked by then Governor Jerry Brown. And then again, in 2018, the parole board recommended she should be released. And this time, the governor who was a new governor blocked it again. In September of 2019, Leslie Van Houten appealed this decision, but her appeal was denied and she remains in prison. So parole board has actually recommended release for her multiple times and it has been blocked by the governor every time.
2: Okay,
1: I know you're not going to know the exact ages of all these women when the crime occurred, or when they committed the crime. Mm -hmm.
0: But do you know approximately? Yeah, like 18 or 19. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's really young. Yep. Charles Manson never took any responsibility for any murders or showed any remorse. He was denied parole for the 12th and final time in 2012, his last few parole hearings he didn't even attend. He died of natural causes on November 19th, 2017, one week after his 83rd birthday. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite case, the Manson family murders. That was so well told, you did such a good thank job. Thank you, thank you. It was so good. Yeah. So the first time I told it, I didn't talk about the actual murders at all. I went straight to the trial and really just talked all about the trial and like I grow like I think it's important to hear about what happened to the victims. So yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We were still trying to figure out what this podcast. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We still are. Oh, yeah. Um, we, we do not have it figured out yet.
1: <laughs> okay, so at that time, you were really stuck on, like, how you felt like if you'd been around at that time, you would have been sucked into
0: it? Yes, I think that if I would have fucking Charles Manson preached to me, I would have believed every word he said. I would have been one of those girls. Really? Most of, Susan Atkins came from a great family, very well-to-do, and she was sucked right up into his nonsense.
1: You think you would have heard, hey, Brandy, there's a race war no, coming. I think I, I hopefully would be too smart to
0: believe that. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, I really don't think you could be sucked in. But I'm knows? a very big supporter when people have unique ideas. And so that's my fear. That's where I think that I could get sucked in. I'd be like, yeah, I mean, those are some really forward thinking ideas you have there. Like, I'm really into supporting people's ideas. Uh-huh. That's where I think not. But I do think I'm smart enough that I would question things.
1: Right. As you went around trying to find the bottomless pit, <laughs> yes. you'd be like, I don't know that we're going to find sure it. sure we're finding it, guys. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, should we tell the people what we're planning to do for the end of this episode? Yeah. So, you know, lately, at the end of each episode, Norman goes on to our Discord. Oh, should
0: I grab Norman? Yeah, here? grab oh, Norman yeah. real okay. quick. Where should I grab him? Huh. Ooh, <laughs> giggity. Hey, Norman you want to tell people what you did norm Norm, what'd you you do do? norm what did you do
3: (laughs) i went on the lgtc discord what's that um you know i don't know what is that Kristen?
0: brandy (laughs) you and i are sharing a mic can you make brandy say it
3: brandy what is the discord so the discord
0: is like a 90s chat room that we have if you sign up for our patreon so if you sign up at the five dollar or seven dollar level you get access to the Discord, it's so fun. It's like all of the other patrons in there, and then Kristen and Norm and I are all in there, and our we, moms are in. Our there. moms are in there. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's DP really a great. Time. Occasionally
1: pops in to make fun of us. That's
0: right, um, or and also show off his sweet Photoshop
1: skills. Oh my gosh! Yeah, more on that later. But there's also bonus episodes, and at the seven dollar level, you get inducted and you get a sticker. Whew.
3: Okay so, what would you do in the Discord norm? So I asked your listeners their favorite memories of the Let's Go to court podcast. Oh my gosh. there's a lot. This was the most responses we've ever gotten. Ooh,
1: twelve for... whole responses.,
3: yeah, this is a ton <laughs> <Loved them. laughs> So this is their favorite episode or what they associate the podcast with, just everything. so I'm just gonna go through. okay you awesome. guys you guys can react. Okay. Uh, Kay Burns says I started listening to this podcast around the time my son was born Hmm. and it helped me so much with postpartum depression and now it is associated with him so it will always hold a special place in my heart oh my
0: gosh oh that's amazing that makes me want to cry
3: Sylvia says you guys got me through so many hours filing invoices this summer and doing homework (laughs) during the school year thank you for making me look like an idiot by laughing so much at the podcast at work
0: you're welcome Sylvia (laughs) anytime
3: <laughs> fiery1 says my favorite memory is how you all have taken dairy accessories to heart
0: yes <laughs> fiery1 is our resident dairy expert yeah he works
1: in the dairy field and one time in our discord he said something about dairy accessories and we were like what the fuck what is that what the fuck that? Are is dairy that accessories when, like a cow wears the heart of the ocean necklace or <laughs> anyway turns out it's yogurt cheese it's you know yeah. all that so you know
3: <laughs> gp weight says, my water breaking during the Bob Moss episode.
0: Yes. Yes, that's one of my favorite things that somebody's ever I told know, us. I know yes. How cool is that? Yes. And then she named her child Brandy. That's right. Her child's named Brandy now, and it's a boy, so.
3: <laughs> I don't believe that. No,
0: it's no, His name's really Max. Gad-
3: <laughs> Gadriel says, the pants lawsuit. Oh, Just yes. dying with laughter the whole way through.
0: Roy Pants 182. You know,
1: okay, that that episode holds like a special place in my heart because that summer was when I spent the summer in Iowa and it was eight weeks away from you both. Yeah. It was really hard. Yeah. And we recorded a ton of stuff beforehand. I mean, we just like killed ourselves trying to get stuff done. And so the episodes would come out and we were away from each other. And I remember like walking through Iowa (laughs) And, like, listening to us and just, like, missing you and, oh, oh. anyway, oh. oh. That is such a good case. Yeah, that dry cleaner was a dick. No.
3: <laughs> no Roy Pants was I'm a just dick! I'm kidding. Becky says, when Brandy and Kristen get distracted by something totally unrelated cheese, a dog outside, etc. This is how I know you're my people.
0: <laughs> that describes us perfectly.
1: I don't think we've ever gotten distracted by anything. Oh, really? Yeah, no side stories <laughs> here. Never.
0: Just the facts, man. That's ma'am. right.
3: <laughs> Patrick says, it was a juvenile.
0: Yes, oh. that's my favorite case you've ever done. I laughed so much fucking hard at that case
1: there have been so many times when we've started crying laughing yes
0: the sausage
1: brunch oh bob moss i that that was almost the end of me yes bob moss, bob the mob moss. Yes. <laughs> juvenile uh, bigfoot the nipple plier oh my god <laughs> yes oh uh. <laughs> we have fun
3: chris lee says I was blown away to learn that in Abraham Lincoln's day, you could just go to the White House and meet with the president.
1: What? My God. (laughs) Let's go talk to Trump about this.
3: Uh. Resident Canadian Mark says, sitting here at 100 episodes, did you ever feel this could have been a reality?
0: Uh, no. Yeah, what what were our expectations? I don't know what our expectations were, but we're like, 12 people will listen to it, Mm -hmm. and... We'll do it until it's not fun anymore. Yeah, I think we'll
1: do it until it's not fun anymore. Yeah. sums it up. Yeah. We just, we had this idea. We thought it'd be cool. We had a blast. Like the first time we recorded an episode, I remember Norman afterward, you came up to me and you were like, wow, you two sounded like you were having so much fun. And yeah, it's just been awesome. It
0: has been. Every time.
3: Uh, B Barsina says,
2: Kerberm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah.
3: Had me in stitches. Herb, herb, herber, herber. Herber. herb. Herb, herb. herb herber. Herber. Let's see. Ooh. Tiff and I says, Brandy's story about the creepy guy who took pictures oh. of her fondling a balloon. Oh, <laughs> oh God.
0: Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. terrible. Oh, I still have nightmares about that.
3: She says, I don't remember what episode that was, but I was driving back all night from taking my daughter out of state for a concert and it kept me company and I immediately subscribed and have looked forward to Wednesdays oh. ever since. Oh. So you're a creepy balloon boy. <laughs> Yay. So
1: Got that you was listening. the cannibal cop episode. Oh, it was the cannibal cop yeah, episode. That was you're a right. really yeah. good episode because you and I
0: thought about it. we did fight. <laughs> to the death. To the death. Yeah, I'm a ghost.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Don't say that when I'm thinking.
3: (laughs) Kelly says, being able to share your guys' humor with my boyfriend and friends. Listening to the podcast while I'm cozied up in bed getting ready to sleep. Learning so much about so many interesting and fascinating cases. I always look forward to each and every episode you guys put out because you all have just a sweet relationship with one another and getting to listen in on you guys just being yourselves has been such a treat.
0: Hmm. What if it was all fake? What if we hated each other? Oh, my God.
3: Paid actors.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, that's what I love. Like, you know, those boy bands that were like
2: put yes, together.
1: Yes, put together. Yes. Yeah. Mormon think... is Lou Pearlman.
0: Yeah. Oh. I think it would have come out by now if we were not real friends. But do you
1: remember that person on Facebook? This was a long time uh-huh. ago. And they asked, like, hey, now that you guys have been doing the podcast for a while, do you consider yourselves real cool friends, friends? Yeah. rather than just acquaintances? And it was like, how the hell do you think we met? Yeah. <laughs> we met in fifth grade. Yes.
3: <laughs> By the way, the very, uh, I actually missed one. The very first reply,
2: mm-hmm.
3: or sorry, one of the first replies, Anna says, my fair story is of your darling wife shitting herself in the car.
0: Oh. <laughs> It's a great story. And a great memory. <laughs> poor peanut. <laughs> Cried the whole
1: time. And poor me. I shat myself. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any idea how much dignity you lose shitting yourself on the side of the highway?
3: When Kristen first brought up sausage brunch, like it was the most everyday known thing in the world, my husband and I looked at each other and were like, what the fuck is she talking about? <laughs> So glad Brandy was also completely confused and called her out. <laughs>
0: That's a good one. And we're going to make it for our December video, right? That's right.
2: Yes. I'm so excited.
3: Neo Black Mage says, "Hands down, creamy boy got oh. me." It still oh. does to this day. Oh. You're welcome.
0: It's kind of it's kind of caught on. Yeah. We definitely call Cream Soda Creamy Boys. (laughs) It's one of those things. Sometimes
1: a nickname is too good. When Norman and I were first dating and I introduced him to Peanut, Norman called her The Nut. And Mm -hmm. I was like, please stop. Yeah. Please stop. Because that's going to catch on. Yeah. What do we call her now? The Nut. The Nut. And what do we call Cream Soda now? Creamy Creamy Boys. boys. Gotta
0: get a Creamy Boy.
3: (laughs) Those there's are a, awesome. There's a ton more, but I think yeah, I think we'll, get on, on. Just, yeah, it's, yeah, it's we'll get on in this. Yeah, it's starting to feel like, right like
0: we're masturbating. I know it's gotten very <laughs> self
3: indulgent here. I so. mean, a hundred episodes—that's a big deal. You should, you both should be proud.
0: Thank you, Norm. Mm-hmm.
1: And as fifty percent owner, you should also be proud.
0: You should you. be fifty percent proud. I'm hmm. Very proud of my ladies.
1: <laughs> hey, ladies! Thank you, Norm. We appreciate you.
0: Thank you, everyone, who took the time to to send in a fun memory. Those were yeah, awesome.
1: Those really were. Hey, should we do inductions? Let's do some inductions. But first, mm. what the hell are you talking about? I'm
0: talking about the Supreme Court. <coughs> now that's where you, you're like, oh right,
1: oh right. <laughs> boy oh boy thank you to everyone who has joined the supreme court lately let's do some inductions we are still
0: doing favorite tv shows are you ready no of course i'm not christine oh geez i'm almost there hold on hold on hold on hold up wait a minute okay i am there Remember, to get inducted into the Supreme Court, all you have to do is sign up for our Patreon at the $7 level. You get inducted, you get a sticker, you get a card, you get bonus videos, you get bonus episodes, you get to get in the Discord, you get case updates. I mean, the list goes on and on. That's literally all of them, but it's a long list.
1: <laughs> <laughs> really took it out of you, huh? It
0: sure did. I'm out of breath. Kristen, what should people do for this week's inductions? For this week's inductions. Kinda
1: just snapped, damn it. Um... <laughs> Okay, for this week's inductions, the next time you're talking to someone, clap randomly for emphasis (laughs) if you're being recorded, even better.
0: Even better. Patrick. Scrubs. Ensign Mazer. Star Trek The Next Generation. Ashley. The Mindy Project. Miriam. Seinfeld. Natalie. The OA. It's just so, so special and my heart is still broken from Netflix not renewing it. I've never heard of it. Oh, yeah, I've heard of it. I, I haven't seen it. It's like a sci fi thingy. Oh, yeah, that explains it. Beth. The Office. Morgan Kelly. Veronica Mars. Jess Smith. Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Julia Sola. Law and Order. Original recipe, not SVU. Hey,
1: what? wow, Julia. <laughs> That's only my favorite brand. <laughs> Welcome, Welcome
0: to the Supreme Court! You want to? You do the thing this time, man.
1: I really gave you a complex, didn't I? I just said it the one time. I just made fun of you You one time. Oh my gosh, you guys! Thank you so much for (laughs) Now you're trying to do my voice.
0: (laughs) I mean, I guess it's cool that you guys signed up for the Patreon or whatever. Like we care. care. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Ask us if we care. Ask us if we care. Ask us if we even care if you find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, (laughs) Instagram, Reddit, YouTube. You know, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah if you're into that kind of thing, which we totally
1: are not. We've always been very cool, guys, so um, your support means nothing. love it! No, it means everything. No, we it love does. it so much. Thank yeah. you,
0: guys. We appreciate it yes, very much. thank you so much. Please be sure to join us next week. When we'll be experts, I'm sorry. I, it's for
1: some, the 100th fucking episode, I know. Kristen. The way, I blame you. The way you said it was, like, your delivery was very <laughs> unusual. When we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast, Podcast adjourned! adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from an episode of American Greed, new
0: york times magazine the kansas city business journal and wikipedia and i got my info from an article for the crime library by marilyn bardsley famous trials.com helter skelter by vincent buliosi and wikipedia for a full list of our sources visit lgtcpodcast.com any errors are of course ours but please don't take our word for it go read their stuff